Never doing what you say you're doing. Yeah, you drop that Russian on ride like we was making movies. Brianna Joy Gray, apologies for the technical issues with the app, not sure what that was, but we are all now here convened and hopefully we'll be joined a little bit later in the episode by both of our guests from today's episode, Benjamin Norton and Ajamu Baraka. Uh, But before we start taking questions, because I know we are delayed, let's go ahead and listen to a brief clip from the episode before we get into it. Obviously, as you know, we can talk about today's episode of Bad Faith Podcast, but the floor is also open. There's been quite a bit. Unfortunately, that's happened in the world over the last week or so. So the floor is yours. Here we go. During uh, his remarks, uh, election night, when he was on um, the stage, you know, surrounded by, you know, a crowd of people. And he said, uh, we're going to uh, uphold capitalism or something to that regard. And I don't know if I'm imagining it, but it seemed like. Uh, Marquez, his VP, kind of tensed, and he reached out and touched her arm almost reassuringly. And then he went on to say, "It's not because you know, you know, we we love capitalism or what have you, but it's because we want to, uh, you know, we need to advance the country and get past feudalism and those kinds of things." But it seemed to be an interesting visual contrast between those two and their politics. Uh, Ajamu, am I right to say that you have a, a, a relationship with Marquez, that you, you know her? I know our friends her very well since she's was, she was a teenager, yes. Mm. Um, and so she she did tense up mm. because it's a very delicate um, dance that they are involved in uh, uh, in Colombia. Uh, very, very complex. Uh, and uh, Pedro being the politician that he is, um, is uh, pursuing a strategy which he uh, believes that he that that these kinds of, of reassurances will provide some breathing space for the for the uh, new administration. Uh, he understands, like Francia clearly understands, that uh, the 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 electoral win is just the first phase. Uh, that the struggle really will uh, intensify now because the 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 right they're not going to want to allow him to to govern. Secondly, there will be some um, under underhanded policies and and uh, behaviors that they're going to have to deal with uh, extra legal behaviors uh, that they're going to have to deal with. So, uh, trying to at least uh, neutralize some potential opposition. I think it's a strategy that he's trying to pursue, mm-hmm. but I think he he understands like everybody that uh, the the politics in Colombia such that there there are demands coming from the from the base coming from the bottom up 
uh, that are, are, are requiring that uh, they do make some more than just incremental changes. Mm -hmm. uh, they are going to have to begin to uh, address the, the, the contradictions of the economy, uh, the, the role of the, uh, of the oligarchy, uh, and they're going to have to do this and be relatively aggressive in doing it. So it, it is a very complex situation. Uh, Pedro is not uh, pursuing or not uh, articulating a revolutionary program, but the base of support uh, is a base that uh, is pushing and will be pushing for real changes, not just symbolic changes. All right. You heard it from Ajamu Baraka. The reason that, among others, that they were successful in Colombia in electing a left president is because, unlike our activist groups in the United States, which tend to be a bit of a, a tail wag, a dog wagging the tail situation where they advocate for a seat at the table regardless of what is served, the movements are strong enough there and uh, potential electeds are reliant enough on them that they actually have to bend the knee to the orgs and try to solicit their votes and be, you know, trying to seek out their um, approval, which is why ultimately Petro had to pick a leftist VP as a balm to the base, even though he seems to feel like he has to chart a more centrist lane in order to get elected and perhaps avoid the fate of some of his leftist predecessors <clears throat> in the kind of uh, assassination arena. This obviously has some implications for us in the fight that we're all in right now, given that we just had the news. The row is over. I have been avoiding in some ways doing an episode on this on bad faith in part because one, everyone's talking about it, and there are a million legal experts who can give that angle better. And there are a lot of people talking about the political implications. Someone wrote a great piece, I think, in Vox that was called, like, Dims Drop the Ball. And it has been very heartening to see so many people in so many contexts that are kind of libish. Often, you know, seeing plainly the ways in which the Democratic Party's uh, malpractice brought us here I hope that there's something good that comes out of this. And so far as it's a kind of unifying moment for a fractured left center left in the United States of America. Uh, but the response from Dems is not great. Um, I, you know, Nina Turner has been tweeting all day. <laughs> a lot of people have been tweeting all day, obviously, but I just saw um, a good tweet from her that just came by the path uh, down the, down the timeline saying that this is unacceptable. I mean, everyone is feeling that way. I think with the exception of perhaps AOC, who did a tweet thread that announced a plan of action that at least had some concrete interventions that uh, the Biden administration could take, most other people are doing bupkis. And unfortunately, one of those interventions, opening abortion clinics on federal land, uh, uh, I think VP Harris was asked about, and she said no, we have to think about the fact that we have an election season coming up and uh, including in states where that we might be thinking of opening clinics on federal land, basically saying that to win midterm, she's going to uh, not pursue one of the avenues for getting people who need abortions in those states access to reproductive care. So that's cool. Uh, Andrew, the floor is yours. What's on your mind this evening? Hey, Avery. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. Um, very 
yeah, very much enjoyed the episode with Ajamu and Ben. Um, I mean, I enjoy all your episodes, but I think I have been more and more um, kind of adamant and hoping we'll see more and more exposure of Latin American politics to the U.S. because I think that, you know, like you've been doing, I think, a really good job um, cutting through the the middle of the various arguments for and against uh, different electoral and non-electoral strategies. And I think that not only Colombia just now, but also Bolivia years ago, Mexico six or not six. Yeah. About six years ago um, was kind of the middle of their drive to build Morena. It just seems like there's, I, I don't think anyone can really make the argument that like people in the U S are worse off materially or that there's more, corruption and hurdles for us to get over to build something that's this formidable. Um, and I think also I heard, I heard a Fenny make a point in uh, Karen or pfft, ooh, Aaron and Katie's show this morning. <laughs> Whoops. Um, <laughs> Not Karen. I'm going to have to tell Katie about that portmanteau. <laughs> no, no, it's because Aaron's name is like 90% of Karen. <laughs> that's hilarious she's gonna get a laugh out of that (laughs) all right fine i'll take it i'll take one for the team (laughs) but what 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 was said on their show well if any made a point that i think is really really poignant it's come up in you know in other shows on colin the last two days there's been a lot of like kind of debate or other talks about uh roe versus wade going down um I think there's a few things that, that if any said, ba- basically what if any said is these people are not the majority, the people that actually believe in this fairly hard line, religious based idea that the moment of an egg is fertilized by sperm, it's a human, um, you know, they, they believe humanity begins at conception. There are actual biblical scriptural arguments that undo that but it doesn't matter to these people like i i think that there's a very small number of people that could be one um contrary to other other things where i think you and nathan robertson and glenn have done a good job saying that actually people aren't so so firm in their beliefs it's worthwhile to have debates um across issues even if people feel like it's already hashed out to you know to not be insular and have these debates elsewhere can win um win over people but i think that Fenny's point is we don't have to win over people. We already have a majority on this issue. And, and I think, um, you know, going, going with the model that these Latin American parties have done, which is kind of to, to seek out relationships with existing social movements, offer real um, deliverables to them, and then, um, and then seek state power. I mean, I think, I think it kind of sews up some of the, the missing the things that i think are missing from something like the f you know the new deal of the fdr era of the depression um without a without a newer party to to wield power and and crowd out the democrats and republicans the you know almost all the the really major gains of the new deal were lost by the the late 40s and the early 50s i mean yeah some of them no but sorry go ahead no it, it does seem to me clearer than ever that another party is necessary not just for the obvious reasons you know dim suck but also because i I was thinking i've been thinking a lot about how to talk about abortion on rising you guys know that my (laughs) i have rising brain now and i'm i'm like constantly figuring out like 
you know, I don't want to be just butting my head against the wall. You know, what in an issue like this, the people who already don't agree with me, I feel like in large part aren't going to agree because it's so politicized and it's not even about, it's not even about, well, he, well, here's what I was thinking. Even if you agree that like the majority of Americans that abortion should be legal, that you think the viability line established in Roe and Casey is where we should be as a country, or even a 14 week ban, which was the original point of the Mississippi law, but never mind that. Um, you're never going to vote Democrat if you're a Republican on that issue. Do you know what I mean? So even if you agreed with us, just like uh, Democrats, let's say hypothetically, might agree with uh, one of these handful of Republicans that are anti-interventionists on on war, but you're not ever going to just vote for a Republican because you care so much about these other social issues and the social safety net and stuff like that. I mean, I think that's largely the case. So I was thinking to myself, in some ways, even having a conversation about this in that context is largely moot unless you can tell people an alternative place to go. You know what I mean? It's it's one thing for me to say, oh, like your party's leading you astray on uh, talking endlessly about uh, drag book readings for kids and banning abortion. Here, go to this third option. <laughs> that sounds very different than, oh, come vote for Democrats, who I also agree suck a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and, and mean, you know that's that's frustrating. Oh. That's overwhelming. But like, it's just never it's never been clear to me that like there has to be a landing pad, or else so many of the arguments just are going to fall on deaf ears. Yeah, you end up, um, well, not you specifically, but people end up, you know, being when they make an argument like, "Here's why it's it, you're being duped if you're voting for the Republicans." The default response is, "Well." you know, Barack Obama and Joe Biden are, and Hillary Clinton are no saints. And, Mm -hmm. and there's just so much time wasted. I, but I think like my, my thoughts about there needs to be a landing pad. I, I a hundred percent agree, but I think in the meantime, we don't necessarily have to give a, um, we don't have to have a national Congress right now on, on what's the new third party going to be. I think that, um, I think that we're in such a rudimentary stage, but there's still so much to work with. Like we could just be thinking about ballot initiatives state by state. Um, and there are, you know, I could think of in my own state or neighboring ones where I'm a little more familiar, probably around about a dozen or a couple dozen organizations that are already doing some form of community organizing that already have a, a decent connection to a number of uh, different communities that make up different parts of constituencies across the state that could push for something, you know, I think some really big issues right now that could cut across would be, yeah, like universal health care or health insurance in a state, um, some form of land reform, or at least, at least like property tax and rent control. I think um, if you, if people kind of put together, like similar to the 10 demands that were kind of going around state by state, there was no like party, pushing the 10 demands during the uh the george floyd kind of uprising but they showed up in every state and in most major cities in the states around pushing to to cut down the police budgets and i guess maybe that's not the best example because a lot of that fell apart like in seattle where i'm from we pushed really hard for 50 percent defund and eventually the city council passed a less than one percent uh mm. defund and they put in some other things that weren't really asked for that, that seemed kind of nice. So I think it, it sort of distracted people and people didn't keep their eye on the ball. But like, if you look at protests in, in 
like Ecuador right now, the gray zone's been doing good coverage of these really large scale protests that are going on. Um, people are keeping their eye on the ball and you tend to see, and I'm not saying it's impossible in the U S I think we need, we just need to do a little bit of talking amongst ourselves and be like, Hey, if they don't give us the demand, the protest isn't over. Um, and you know, we find other creative ways to deal with like rain and, and cold or something and, and, and not just be limited to a protest season that gets kind of overturned in the next election uh, season. So I think we got to be really clear, like, not voting for Democrats right now is a good thing to do, even if there's not a landing part, a landing platform in, in, in the form of a new party. And there's other stuff we could be focusing our time on that will build the necessary ingredients for party for new parties. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I appreciate you. Um, appreciate you calling in today, Andrew. Appreciate all you do, Bree. I'll talk to you later. All right. Keep the faith. All right, Peter, you're up next. What's on your mind today? Andrew, unmute. Oh, wait, Peter. Un- oh, wait, that's my fault. My fault. That's my fault. Peter, Can unmute you yourself. Me? There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Having me. I was going to call uh, Katie uh, Halper this morning, but uh, but uh, I was so busy at my regular job. So uh, thank you for having me. I just of want course. to help everyone to, s- to strategize a little bit about sure. this uh, re- uh, Roe v. Wade reversal, right? So Supreme Court justices are politicians in robes. Uh, I'm not the one who's saying it. Uh, this is according to Professor Lawrence Tribe of Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. So the wh- woman who uh, felt violated by the U.S. Supreme Court. In my opinion, they should immediately pursue a political solution, not a legal solution, you know, for this god-awful situation these politicians put them through, right? So uh, even though I know there's a legal solutions, which, you know, I, I would do it, you know, do, do it on my shelf uh, later. But so impeachment is a political solution. Mm-hmm. What is the ground for impeachment? Did some justice lie to the Senate? I heard That's a lot AOC about it. AOC says. AOC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Go ahead. So Trump Trump was impeached for encouraging January 6th riot mm-hmm. because a head of the executive branch obstructed a regular business of another branch, the Congress, right? Mm-hmm. So I think he should be impeached, even though I don't think he should be impeached for the Russia gate, but, but I do believe he should be impeached for that. Lying to Senate by a member of the judiciary, in my opinion, is an impeachable offense because it is an off, uh, it's a offense by one branch of a, a government against another, right? So, what, so, so people will say, well, what about the Senate will never convict, convict these ju- justices? Who knows? The impeachment proceeding is like a legal proceeding. It will bring all kinds of dirty laundries of these justices to the public. They may choose to resign. If they so choose to do so, like Nixon did, maybe Biden will have another opportunity to appoint a replacement. So here comes the sad reality, talking about voting Democrats. The Democrats are politicians too, right? Politicians, they want to use this crisis to get votes in November for themselves, to keep themselves in the office without doing anything. So to me, it's time to actually tell the Democrats you either bring the impeachment by October or you will lose your job, okay? If you want change, don't demonstrate in front of the Supreme Court justices. Go after the Democrats. Go after Pelosi. 
She did it twice against Trumps. What's the what's the big deal now? The Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the White House, right?、Mm-hmm. And they actually prosecuted many others who lied to the Congress. So why not impeach? Again, I'm not saying this is a legally sound strategy. But guess what? The Supreme Court is a political up there politicians. So for the politicians, here's our political solution as people. So I wanted to be because the reason I want to call uh, in uh, earlier today to、uh, Katie is I want to just share this with everybody. So let's strategize properly, right? You know, my show is about judicial white privilege, but this is a political crisis. This is a pure simple, right? Yes.、So、this is what I want to offer.、Mm-hmm. Go ahead. So on NBC yesterday,、uh, AOC said, "Quote: They lied." If we allow Supreme Court nominees to lie under oath and secure lifetime appointments to the highest court of the land, and then issue issue without basis, if you read these opinions, rulings that deeply undermine the human civil rights of the majority of Americans, we must see that through. There must be consequences、yeah. for such a deeply destabilizing action and the hostile takeover of our de- democratic institutions. And what makes it particularly dangerous is that it sends a blaring signal to all future nominees that they can now lie to duly elected members of the United States Senate. In order to secure Supreme Court confirmations and seats on the Supreme Court, yeah, yeah. There's another story by Wall Street Journal. Many people is not aware of all these uh, uh, federal judges when they are、uh, when they are doing their confirmation. Almost each one of them will be asked about so-called the federal recusal statute. They all swear under oath they're going to uphold that. Guess what? According to Wall Street Journal, again, not my words. They find out 130 some judges. They literally sit on preside over cases when they have a financial stake in the cases. Yeah, I mean our judiciary is absolutely corrupt, and it's abs because they have absolute power, absolute immunity, and they abs they corrupt absolutely. So this is a, the crisis of this country. It's a political crisis. So that's why I think the the, the, the sad part is again Democrats are politicians too, right? So, for all of you who really care deeply about these poor women, who, in my opinion, clearly is violated,、uh, you know, just tell them no. Go after all the Democrats. Impeachment by November, or we're not going to come out and vote for you. You、yeah. will, you will be surely lose because、yeah. the, the economy is going to go through the tank. The gas price will be up. That's your only hope. Bring the impeachment. Say save yourself some graces. Yeah. So, I mean. I, I I believe I agree with you. I think that people should weigh in and tell me what they think about impeachment. I don't think that it will result in getting any Supreme Court justices to step down. It might have some chilling effect on future Supreme Court justices that don't want to go through that rigmarole and make them maybe more honest as they're being going through the confirmation process. But also, even if it doesn't work, you know, I, I'm open to the idea that it has value in terms of exposing the inequities of the system and if. Combined with, you know, a, a court packing push or anything like that, will help to make the case for why Democrats are looking for those kinds of、um, largely unprecedented reforms. You know, to give justification for why they're pushing for things like that that are going to be a little bit difficult for the public to swallow. Unfortunately,、yeah. based、mm-hmm. on what Kamala Harris has said recently, and this is this is what Nina Turner was so frustrated with. I mentioned at the top of the show. You know, VP Harris telling Dana Bash the idea of putting abortion clinics on federal lands is quote 
is not right now what we are discussing. In terms of the states, we also have to recognize that we are 130-odd days away from an election, which is going to include Senate races. To me, that quote says that they are in their typical posture of believing that they have to – they're a they're basically Republican light party, and they're never going to do anything that makes – you know, a Reagan Democrat in Connecticut feel even a little bit uncomfortable, which means they're going to lose, which means they're not going to demonstrate any kind of fight, which means they're not going to do anything at all along these lines. But I'm completely with you. I'm very heartened by how many people, including how many liberals, have been out here saying we're not falling for this fundraising trick. We're not voting for Democrats unless you attempt to do any of the things that you could possibly do. And again, here's this list from AOC. Uh, restrain uh-huh. judicial review, expand the court, clinics on federal lands, expand education mm-hmm. and access to Plan C, repeal the Hyde mm-hmm. Amendment, hold floor votes, codifying Griswold, Obergefell, Lawrence, Loving, etc., uh, and vote on Escobar's bill protecting clinics. Yeah, I want to remind everyone the original Roe Way is decided by at least five Republican appointed justices. So this yeah. is not some right. This is but we not, live in not, a we not, live in a very different world than we did in the 1970s. Unfortunately, like I, I have been making the point that Nixon implemented price controls. Like Nixon founded the EPA. I mean, there are a lot of things that happened, and I think it's mm-hmm. worthwhile to keep that historical perspective. But also, we shouldn't be naive about the fact that that Republican person doesn't exist anymore. That kind of Republican doesn't exist, and that party doesn't exist. Yeah, I just hope that in your uh, people like you in your position and the Katie Halper. You, sh- you know, we should promote a impeachment uh, uh, movement. Literally, we should impeach these judges because they did lie. I mean, if they can get away of lying to the Senate, then everybody should be allowed to lie to the Senate. So I don't mean to hold you up. Everybody, I appreciate it. Uh, no, I appreciate you calling in. Thank you very much. And I hear, I see in the Thank chat you. that Ajamu Baraka is in the listener chat, but for some reason, when I'm searching for his name, it's not coming up and he's not visible in the listeners visible to me. You know, some of them are hidden. It says 70 plus others, and maybe he's in there. So Ajamo, if you could um, get in the caller queue, so I'll be able to see, I'll bring you up to uh, be a speaker with me on the floor. I know everyone is eager to hear from you in the interim. I'm going to go ahead and bring up Omar as the next caller. Unmute yourself, Omar, and let us know what's on your mind this evening. Hey, Bree. Oh, I think I see you, Ajamo. Uh, yes. Hey, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well. What's on your mind this evening? So uh, one of the things that um, Ajamo said that really stuck with me, and it kind of connects back to uh, some of the things that I've said before, is the sophistication of the organizations in Colombia. And I think you can generalize that to other um, countries that have had like successes in in mobilization, like in India, um, the general strike that involved 250 million people. Um, And what we should learn from that is, um, I think the pattern for me is that these countries are more collectivist than we are. And I think that is probably what's underlying like the level of sophistication in the organization that's happening. And we're really atomized in this country. Um, And I mean, I just kind of proved it to myself the other day when I uh, volunteered to help out in this project. And I found somebody that had uh, exactly the same views that I did. And I would have never known it had I not volunteered, put myself out there. 
mm. and bonded with this person. And so I think that's one thing that's really missing in our American lifestyle is actually connecting with people uh, because there's research on this that shows that a sense of community leads to more trust. It, mm-hmm. It's a good predictor of uh, political activism. Uh, and and so like it just has like a feedback loop after that, like the more engaged you are, the more sense of community there's going to be, the more trust. And I think that's when you start to develop more um, these sophisticated organizations where people care about each other, where they're looking out for each other, where they trust each other, and they actually start to get things done um, and are and are a lot more um, resilient in the face of infiltrators, <laughs> um, sabota- saboteurs, um, and, all, and all these things that, that the elites throw at these organizations, these movements. Um, and um, yeah, I'm a broken record, but I want to suggest uh, Vijay Prashad um, mm-hmm. to focus on this uh, this topic and uh, kind of what uh, things that he's learned from from movements like in India and Latin America, because I know he visits Latin America a lot. Um, I think it would be really uh, instructive and really like, yeah, it would be great to see you too talk about it because you're great people uh he's definitely i feel like i've invited people say that all the time and i i think i have reached out in the past but i'll reach out again if i if i'm mistaken on that but thank you so much for the suggestion and i couldn't agree more i was actually thinking the other day like yesterday um i was on a train and daydreaming about um i I think someone had tweeted something about uh, reverend wright and it got me thinking about black liberation theology and, you know, what if I belonged to a church, at least then would I have, feel, have some sense of community. And I walk by this Unitarian church and I think, oh, should I just go in there? And like, cause I, you know, everyone's saying organize, organize. You know how I feel about that on the show. Yeah. And not everyone is as atomized as me. I, you know, and childless and don't live in the city as same city as my family and all those kinds of things. But like I wouldn't even know where to start. And I I was standing, I was, I went to the you know Supreme court on Friday and I was standing there and I was looking at all these people and I was thinking to myself, I could think of two or three things that would be more useful to us than standing here in this crowd for some appointed a number of hours. But there's no way for me to communicate that really to the people who are standing literally right next to me and who share my interests it's not clear that there's any reason why any of them should trust me. I don't necessarily trust or fully believe that my idea is the best one or anything, but it just seems like obviously more useful to say, oh, <laughs> traffic than be standing here in the protest zone or the freedom zone or whatever they call it, the, the First Amendment zone. Um, you know, to the extent that there were several speakers, including um, and Michaela, Michaela Wilkes, who came on Bad Faith Podcast, you know, are these people registered? <laughs> you know, you know, all of those kind of things are running through my head, but there was something that felt really dispiriting about realizing like there's no, I, I can't like communicate that with anybody around me. Like what am I going to tap people on the shoulder and just be like, Hey, hi, let me introduce myself. <laughs> what do you think about going to stand in the street with me right now? I don't know. It felt it like felt weirdly lonely to be there with all these people who agree yeah. with you and also not really have the infrastructure that like the, 
um, relational infrastructure to like be really meaningfully together. Uh, and I was thinking about how oh, Socialist Alternative doesn't have a DC chapter. <laughs> and I was like, like pulling my hair out trying to think. And I ran into a Feeney, you know, she was speaking at the thing. And we ended up, um, you know, having a drink afterward. And uh, we were both kind of feeling the same way, even though she is so much more connected to movements than I am. And she is obviously working on Michaela's campaign as well. And I'm not entirely sure what to do about that because it has to be something that doesn't just pop up periodically when something bad happens, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that speaks volumes to just the the culture that we're in because I'm extroverted. I come from a collectivist culture, but I live in this culture that where it just seems awkward. It feels awkward because most likely, most of the time it's going to feel awkward uh, to the person that you're trying to connect with um and i think yeah because we're not used to that kind of exchange and when i went back to mexico that was not it didn't feel as as um i didn't feel as reluctant and people were more likely to be receptive to to just having somebody talk to them and reach out to them and so like it yeah i think it's i mean there's some cultural work that we have to do um to to try to open up uh, like socially to create these, these, uh, these bonds, these institutions to change our daily habits. But I, it's, it's a big project. Yeah. Well, look, I, I would love to hear from Ajamu or anybody else who has experience yes. in that. Ajamu, I, I don't know where you are in the chat. I lost you again. I invited you up to be speaker. You got to accept that invitation uh, to come up on the stage. Alternatively, if you get in the line to be a caller, I will pull you up from the caller line. That's a smaller bundle of people for me to search through to find you. And if Ben, you're in the chat, same to you. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for calling in, Omar. Thank you. Good to talk uh, to you. Always. Uh, Keith, you're up next. Can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind this evening? Uh, yes, Bree, can you hear me? I can, loud and clear. What are you thinking about? Uh, yeah, I've just been thinking about everything you've been talking about. And I appreciate you bringing up the idea of that coalition building. Cause I, I believe you've been very vocal about um, your project of kind of doing a class um, coalition there, um, reaching across the aisle uh, just uh, through a class lens. And I, I just was thinking about and I was hearing about how unpopular the Supreme Court's decision is just kind of nationwide it's, it's it's kind of incredible and i and i just seems to be clear this is a moment um that a lot of you know liberals who were traditionally uh, traditionally uh vote blue no matter who kind of liberals are they're really kind of feeling the limits of what the party can do um mm-hmm. and is willing to do and has done you know demonstratively mm-hmm. and i guess my question is um does you know, in, in the spirit of trying to bring this coalition over, that includes bringing liberals over to a more leftist point of view. Do, does the idea of, um, of of working on this issue of abortion issues and, and Roe v. Wade necessitate some sort of compromise um, on other non-choice issues like Medicare for all for on climate change and things like that? I guess, is the iron hot enough at this point for leftists to be seizing on that opportunity to kind of like create 
you know, create that opening for a coalition there? Or is that just a bridge too far at this point, like as far as those those um, ideals that leftists have? How do you how do you mean compromise? I'm not sure I follow. Well, so and I, I say that in my head, I'm, I'm kind of talking in my head there, but like uh, like. So I, I'm not a fan of his, but I do frequently check out the Bill Maher real time, you know, that branch of left liberal mm-hmm. media. And we're you know, all guilty he's... of watching real time with Bill Maher. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really do feel ashamed because it's like, I can't, at this point, I can't even watch his ending monologue. I just, I just turn yeah. it off because it's, it's just garbage. But yeah. I do like the back and forth at least somewhat with the guests that he's had. And recently you mentioned before he had crystal ball on, mm-hmm. but I think did a phenomenal job on mm-hmm. the show, kind of laying out the leftist point of view on that, revealing a lot of gaps in his armor, as far as knowledge on the trillions of dollars that went to wall street during the, the periods of the pandemic and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. But so, but he's, you know, week after week, even before that, he he's been very consistent and liberals like him have been very consistently talking about how, you know, left is asking for Medicare for all all the time, climate change stuff. It's just kind of like pie in the sky kind of like ideology. And it's a distraction to quote unquote real issues, but they, they, you know, they don't really want to talk about those real issues either. But this issue, this issue of Roe v. Wade and, and, and it's revoked revocation, like that feels like a galvanizing issue to me. Um, and as someone who kind of has a toe both in kind of liberal space and in kind of like right leaning spaces too. Um, and, and have many people I talk to about all these issues with, I, I wonder, like, is this, is this the issue that is going to be able to really create that coalition? I mean, you might have a better sense of that than I do. If you have a toe in kind of right leaning world, it's, it's confusing to me because what is it? 22% of Republicans support Roe. Right. So like a meaningful yeah. chunk, but not exactly like. Uh, the Republican Party is dead levels. And just because you support, again, if just because you support Roe v. Wade doesn't mean you uh, that is your priority or your number one right. issue. There are so right. many people who announce themselves as single-issue voters, and maybe this is my own bias, but my perception is – my perception is that – maybe this isn't fair. I was going to say that I think that there are more conservatives who describe themselves as single-issue voters and will say something like, I'm a mandate voter – like I've heard a lot of people say that recently, that mm-hmm. masking and mandates and vaccine mandates are their their number one issue. Now, that could be a little bit of a performative Internet thing. That might not be a real life thing. I allow that. Um, but I don't know how true it is that that's more Republicans and Democrats. Since I do hear a lot of Democrats even before this moment saying uh, that abortion is their be all end all. So let's put aside who does it more. There are obviously a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats, both who even if one issue like this comes up that they really disagree with their party's take on, they're just not going to budge. And and so I'm curious and frankly, and I hope I'm wrong about this, but as I stood in a moderately sized crowd in my containment free speech zone, as snipers on the roof of the white house, looked down their scopes at us from behind the fencing that's been around the white house since Mm -hmm. one six, Right. And as I looked to my left at the young woman wearing an RBG face mask, and I, I thought to myself, I was like, is this, are these people going to stay mad? Yeah. Especially yeah. in Washington, D.C., where no one who was literally here out in front of the White House, I mean, obviously some people came from afar, but on Friday, at least, nobody who was there is really going to have their rights imperiled for the most part. 
Maybe some for people sure. drove up from Virginia or whatever, but you know, um, no, you know, it, it's going to be very easy for a lot of us to go to brunch. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are already states where abortion was functionally not available before this, right? I remember being in college and there being a big deal about like the the last abortion center in Nebraska or something like that. That was like damn near 20 years ago. Sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I think and I think to your point, like I was very much in that same space of like, why am I talking to people who probably already agree with me? And one and then two are going to probably kind of like fizzle out with. The, the impetus they're feeling at this moment. So I actually this weekend went to a bar with some of my right-leaning friends to watch. I live in Tampa mm. and I went to watch the lightning game, uh, the hockey game um, this weekend. Thanks and, for and clarifying. You, you correctly yeah, said so. that I had no idea what sport lightning was. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Lightning. In the playoffs right now, so, um, but yeah, no, I, I went and chatted some of my right-leaning friends up about this issue. And a lot of them are, are just as kind of frustrated with the ruling, um, of Roe v. Wade as well, mm-hmm. but I, I would argue that they're like, in the same way that there are liberals who are kind of like, you know, vote blue no matter who, there are like, you know, Republicans who are like, vote red and I don't know, until you're dead or whatever, but like they don't even like see it, like they don't even see like the kind of, uh, I guess the, the the religious or the kind of like corporate um, ruling class uh, ideations that are that are created that, that have brought this entire thing into being for the past whatever 50 years like they don't even acknowledge that and they don't like that idea. they don't like it doesn't really penetrate the idea they're just like oh like i vote republican because they agree with them physically or whatever but as i talk to them about you know the implications of this and then you know uh, clarence thomas's statement um following the ruling coming down um, they were they were a little disturbed by that. They are they mm-hmm. certainly wouldn't want to get abortions themselves. They aren't for that, but they they were very much in the vein of uh, you know wanting that ch- choice to be allowed for other people. And like I said, I live in Tampa, so we're dealing with Ron DeSantis in this mm-hmm. state, um, having recently done the the I think it's fourteen or fifteen weeks, and mm-hmm. I guess there's some pressure about. Um, and, and even a more stringent ban coming down the pike of like six weeks, which is outrageous. Yeah. Um, and and it just ha- so happened that one of my friends who's right leaning is is pregnant right now. And mm-hmm. she even she was saying like that just doesn't seem like anything. You know, she brought I can't remember what the term is, but there's the, the pregnancy that can happen where it's the ectopic. You know, the, yes. Ectopic, mm-hmm. Thank you. And she's just like, yeah, like I don't I don't it doesn't sit right with me. She was, she was very vocal about that, you know, even being a right-leaning person. So I think there was a lot more room there for that kind of coalition building on this issue. At least from mm-hmm. what I'm seeing in the conversations I'm having, I think there really is something there. I just wonder if we go in as leftists, guns blazing, talking about Medicare for all and everything else, are we going to then isolate and cool down the kind of like, like there's like a broad kind of like sympathy for what's happening. Are we going to to put water on that basically by trying to also bring those issues up along with this abortion issue? Well, here's what I'd say: Medicare for all, specifically, I believe, is more more um, popular than abortion mm-hmm. rights, and so I don't know that that is the example I would necessarily use to something that could potentially uh, hamstring uh, abortion coalition building. I also think that it's difficult to separate those two, given ability to pay being a 
prohibitive factor to so many people in getting an abortion in the first instance. Um, I would also, you know, I agree with you that some of these, you know, not outlier cases, but more extreme cases involving not just rape or incest, but ectopic pregnancies, a number of celebrities have come forward saying that they've had, you know, I think it was Sharon Stone that said she had like 14 miscarriages and how the, the process to, um, you know, you know, evacuate the, the, the fetus, depending on what stage of pregnancy is very similar to the process of, I mean, it's identical to performing an abortion. And I saw a viral tweet um, today about a woman in one of the states with a trigger law who apparently came into the hospital with an ectopic, ectopic pregnancy. It was an emergency situation and the doctor had to consult with a lawyer and it took nine hours before they, he did the surgery at which, during which time her life was in jeopardy and, you know, wow. increased the risks in surgery all of because of this. So I think that that is really galling, you know, you know that tweet, you know, it had like a hundred thousand plus retweets and all that jazz. So people are really galvanized by these stories I don't know how the Republicans are going to survive being the rape and incest party, probably because Democrats will never actually just call them the rape and incest party. Correct. Correct. You know, they, they do a better job of somehow vilifying a random person in drag reading a children's book as a groomer than we do them literally saying, Hey, we want to protect the rape and incest guys. (laughs) Right. No, that's why I brought up Bill Maher because I was just like, that's exactly what he's doing. He's, He's basically using the right wing talking points every day on his or every week on his show mm-hmm. to kind of like bash the left. And it's just mm-hmm. like it's just it's just it's nonsense. Like you've had we've all been aware of the ruling coming down for all of this time. And instead mm-hmm. of like actually trying to galvanize the left and all and then the Democrats are guilty of this, too. And the Democrats in Congress and the world are guilty of this, too. Instead of actually galvanizing and creating a plan, we've been have waging this culture war issue on you know drag queen story hour and things like that that are that are really kind of like fringe issues and i guess that's what i i i wonder i i think for sure like we can not not like not to say that we're throwing away those issues but like i think i'm sure we can table those issues in in lieu of a more substantive issue regarding roby wade um and and have some conversation where we're we're actually making a bridge there to create the coalition build but I wonder if we should go even further than that and kind of, I wouldn't say table, but, but not, I, I wonder if we should couch the discussion of um, Medicare for all and climate issues that we're having right now behind the, the abortion issue at this point. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to say no, my friend one, because again, no. Medicare for all is very popular. So I don't see yeah. how that would at all be a detriment. And two, uh, Climate's a little bit of a non-negotiable, <laughs> yeah. survival-wise. I don't see, and it's also extremely time-sensitive. Uh, yes. So I just I don't see that happening. What I or, or I see that as um, advantageous. What I will sure. say is this: I enjoyed so many of the speakers at the protest, and I agree with them substantively. However, I did have some uncomfortable moments where in a predominantly white crowd, it was confusing to me why why statements were made like, this is a good time to like Venmo your favorite black activist. Mm -hmm. Um, 
there was some statement about, you know, black lives, you know, something about black lives, which is like a good and positive thing that people should support. But then the follow up kind of, it was a joke, but they were like, if you're not clapping, you're racist, <laughs> you know, sure. and people kind of sure. laughed and I kind of laughed because I, I literally wasn't clapping because I was like taking a video or something at the time or like tweeting. <laughs> um, and there, there, wait a minute. I was like, I was like, uh, texting my uh black lawyer friend group through all of this <laughs> so maybe i actually have some of the um exact quotes here we go my black-esque uh text through group um okay so they said uh okay so they were having the group again um, i would argue 90 plus percent white group mm-hmm. um they were asking that people folks to chant i love being black which, you know, I love being black, (laughs) (laughs) but I'm black. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, In the context of a predominantly white space. Right. Um, I, uh, there was a lot of conversation about black maternal health rates, which is a thing that people should definitely care about and talk about. But again, there was what it felt like. It was, it was like there are a bunch of people who happen to be mostly white here to talk about, abortion rights and it felt like a weird almost these things are all connected right and so i'm not going to say it's shoehorning or derailing because these are connected and intersectional but it almost felt like weirdly trying to shame the people who did show up it was a kind Mm -hmm. of a weirdly aggressive tone at times Mm -hmm. and for what they don't already support right like as if they don't already agree (laughs) right it felt it felt kind of anti-solidaristic it wasn't like hey and i know we all here care about black maternal health rates yeah, it was like, you know, it, it, it felt like it felt like a wedge, not a right. uniter. I, it's hard for me to Absolutely. describe. It's like if, if I went to a um, let's say I went to like a Native American protest, uh, like I went to Doppel or whatever mm-hmm. and no, no Doppel. And I, I start I get up and I'm a speaker and I start going on about like and don't rem- you guys don't forget, like black people are did it, like I try to like shoehorn my shit in, like there's there's one thing to say like i am here as a representative of black lives matter to stand in solidarity with my native american brothers and sisters like oh that's very nice and appropriate and encouraged right. but it was almost like uh like imagine if i went to no double it was like if clap you know venmo your favorite black person and if you don't clap along with me you're racist like sure. there's just a little un- just it's a little a little calling out and less calling in and also why are we calling anybody to begin with we're like actually here in a circle of the allies right now right and the other the other side of that is on the right you have the the trump rally recently where that woman uh went on stage and said um you know thank you donald trump for preserving white life or something yeah and and then and like i was speaking with with my right-leaning friends like that was a cringe moment for them too they're like what like my white life like mm. that's what this is about for you mm. it's a it's a it's a it's another wedge on the other side and i think i think that's very visible right now as far as people on the right who vote right can certainly can vote conservatively for for fiscal reasons but really are kind of kind of grossed out and kind of feel are feeling the government overreach of this ruling um to mm. lay, lay it in the hands of the state and then have someone like santis kind of like for political reasons you know make a a harsher or more lenient or whatever version of those rights on people's bodies and his constituency. Like that's, it just feels gross. 
Yeah, and I think that part of the issue was not the issue, but what what was happening was that there were particular um, black orgs that were invited to speak, and they were kind of you know giving their talking points that they give to advocate for their constituency, which is legitimate and good and fine. But the way the panel of speakers was, since it was basically only them that day right. or that that like three hours that I happened to have been standing there. The impression wasn't like, here's a representative sample of all of the coalitions that are together fighting for this thing, and they're each going to like kind of advocate, you know, like highlight what their specific constituency group's unique priorities are, unique needs are. It kind of came down at moments, not all the time. And I will say the audience was largely with them. But it did sure. sometimes feel like a weirdly negative experience. And that's me talking as a black woman. Yeah, <laughs> like they're yeah. literally preaching to me. And yes. I'm like a complete agreement. But there was just this weird tonal thing. And it's, it was like I felt like I was, even I was being yelled at. And I wasn't, it wasn't clear to me why. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I can relate. That, that's certainly like an, it's an unhelpful cringiness that, that only adds to the the perspective that quote unquote the left or liberals have gone to are going too far in how they're thinking about these things. And like I, I like I've been saying from the beginning, I think your approach to this, your class first approach to this project is gonna be the thing that I ultimately wins the day, I hope. Um so well, I, I just want to end on just saying I hope you continue to do this project and and there are definitely people who are listening to you and appreciating where you're coming from on this for sure. Well, I appreciate you, Keith, and thank you for giving us some intel about what's going on in Tampa. All right. <laughs> All right. Have a good one. Keep the faith. You too. All right, Clifford, you're up next. What's on your mind? Hey, Bree. Um, oh, sorry, my dog just barked. Um, uh, the I'm just calling in because I really enjoyed the episode. I thought one of the big takeaways i really want to respond to a few things that have happened but i really like that someone mentioned the ecuador strikes and protests that are happening now i was thinking um earlier i feel like you've been workshopping like how to best use your rising um radars and the stuff and i don't know really how much freedom you have if you have total freedom with the topics but i do think that like getting a uh a leftist such as yourself to kind of like you know, basically infiltrate one of these mainstream kind of like huge audiences. I think it's really a a huge opportunity to to bring attention to how the rest of the world reacts to their government doing the things they're doing, like essentially uh, indigenous groups protesting, um, you know, fuel prices, you know, and being able to Mm. purchase fuel and all this stuff. Like, I feel like even on the right, there would be an immense interest in a subject matter such as that like an entire country shut down by you know popular movements and how that was formulated and um and what that the crossover for that is huge because everyone you know and you could maybe throw in a line about nationalizing the fossil fuel things and stuff like that i'm sure whatever but like uh the uh i think that would be a huge um just topic to broach and i just see like you having that position is like a crazy opportunity to talk about all these things and kind of galvanize a lot of radical um thought you know and maybe even with some crossover to to people on the right um i I just have two more things 
I'd love to shout out if possible. Is that all right? Yeah. um, So like in this episode, um, I thought like one of the most radical things that I think we as Americans don't really engage with at all is that was like a huge lesson from this um, episode was like, this is a former uh, member of the guerrillas who's Mm -hmm. a, who is now holding elected office. So like, just what that means when you're really a populace fighting entrenched power as occurred in the United States, like the labor movement. I know I've said this many times, but the labor movement through bricks, through windows, you know, uh, mm-hmm. of their, of the 1% because they were trying to make their class enemy uncomfortable. Like mm-hmm. the 1% are literally responsible for the death of millions of people every year through like, you name it, you know, climate to uh, just horrible working conditions across the world. And we fight back by casting ballots in their rigged elections, Mm -hmm. you know, every two to four years. And then we act and no offense to your show, but the uh, we do spend an awful uh, large amount of the dialogue on I understand where you're coming from, from a messaging standpoint, but I feel like even in this, in this call in, I feel there's like a large percentage of the chat that are still focused on those things. And I would think this would be like a pocket of leftism where it would be kind of pointing out like we all need to be as radical as possible so that when we disseminate our information, it's just going to filter and kind of delude as it goes on. But if this space isn't as radical as possible, talking about like essentially if we're modeling after this uh, like incredible Columbia victory, then it would be like we would need to be literally the gorillas. You know what I mean? All the people who are saying all these women are going to die in all these states in Ohio and all this stuff. And like to what degree are we going to fight back? And and what does that mean? And I know this is one issue, but it's incredibly galvanizing. I would much like I would have thought that the death of most biodiversity on earth would it be the galvanizing issue but you know so um either way so and then last thing um so i i just i would love to see that uh like happen with the space and then um um i forgot the last one but thank you so much for letting me rant for a second. yeah of course clifford so to the first point on one of my radars i think last week it might have been the week before who knows it all blurs together i did talk about um, other countries' responses to high oil prices and how tepid ours is as a response. Um, so I, I completely agree with you that modeling by example is useful. To your second point, you know, I don't know what to tell you. If I tell you to go and commit violence or property damage, I don't get to have this show anymore. Oh, totally. Yes. So, so <laughs> you guys totally can figure out that on your own off the air. <laughs> I can't tell you to do that. I don't know what yeah. to tell you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Um. Okay. But I, I totally respect that. And maybe, and I'm sure there's terms and conditions for Colin and stuff like that. I guess I was thinking of bad faith and this is like a reaction thing. And, and like you had even kind of toyed with the idea of the the author of the uh, how to blow up a pipeline or whatever, mm-hmm. and which like just for people who haven't read it, it does not actually have right. instructions on building explosives. But um, the uh, uh, I do think that kind of a provocative thing. Yes, not maybe not endorsing it in in the verbiage you use, but uh, 
But talking about like you can definitely advocate for uh, like we could all be talking about like this is how you can make an effective block blockade of a helipad uh, with six people or something like that. You know what I mean? Like they use 20 people. They shut down an airport, a private jet airport in um, in the UK, you know, that basically serviced only the one percent, you know what I mean? Or it was like a huge percentage of the flights out of there. And that's just like kind of the the stuff that. I just feel like if we're really serious, if we're really thinking, and, and you're so much more intelligent than me, so I'm just like... No, don't do I'm that, like, Clifford. But look, I, I think the, the reality is that as much as that seems like a pretty reasonable thing, those kinds of, you know, blocking roads, blocking airports, you know, blocking capital seems very reasonable compared to, you know, the kinds of things that other folks do around the world regularly, routinely, I, I might add. Yeah. I... It, you know, it is still the case that those kinds of behaviors are technically illegal. Now, right. every civil disobedient, civil disobedience hero has pointed out that you shouldn't follow unjust laws. Right. And I tend to, I tend to agree. Mm-hmm. But even that, like, you know, I, for example, I was standing there in this crowd thinking, like, we clearly should all just move two blocks left to Constitution Avenue and stand there. <laughs> Like clearly yeah. just block, like there were a thousand of us. Let's just block constitution Avenue and see what happens. There was that guy on the bridge, uh, with the canister of green smoke powder thing, you know, asking, tweeting, he climbed up there in the morning. Did you see that? The guy on, um, the bridge that was near the Supreme court. It's named after somebody, Thomas, not Thomas Jefferson, LOL. It was like, uh, Frederick Douglass bridge, I think. Uh, and he was like, why isn't, but why aren't people shutting down this bridge? I mean, it's a good question. And I tweeted like the hypothetical, oh, should people be doing this? <laughs> but like there, there is a point at which, I mean, I'm already shadow banned. I haven't, you know, I haven't picked up a follower in like a year and a half, not a single one, like not one. <laughs> so it is like, you know, I can't, I can say things, I can say them into the void, but it just further limits your reach. And, you know, eventually you will get in trouble for it, you know, especially on YouTube. So, I mean, there is, I think that people know on some level that that need, that those kinds of things probably need to start happening. But also, I don't know that I'm the person who is even, should be even entitled to given those kinds of instructions because who am I and all the pillars that I have and I can afford bail and all those other kinds of things. I don't have to worry about getting some job and my, my record looks like it. I'm not really comfortable doing that. Besides which, those kinds of efforts should be organized. There are, you know, people who are knowledgeable organize those kinds of efforts and they have, um, you know, uh, lawyers on hand to help people process and get out. And they write, they tell people to write phone numbers on their arms. And there are all of these techniques like that. They're not reinventing the wheel. So I share your frustration that those conversations aren't happening. I'm not entirely sure that I'm the one that should be having them. I hope that there are signal chats somewhere where people are having all kinds of conversations about civil disobedience. But, you know, I, I, I share in your frustration but it doesn't see it's not clear to me where to even go if you wanted to participate in something like that. Yeah, I, I totally uh I totally feel you. And I unfortunately have to run, but I would just say Oh a phone call. I'm sorry. Clip. But uh did you did, can you still hear me? I, I can't. Oh yeah. sorry about that. Um I was just gonna say, are you allowed on rising to like highlight? acts of disobedience or uh, or civil disruption or or something like that and just like this is an extremely like kind of american ideal as far as like the 
I think people like to tote it, how like standing up to tyranny and all this stuff, you know, like, uh, so I just feel like there's a lot of potential with a topic like that, but are you even allowed to cover something? Yeah. Like I mean, that? I, my radar last week about the, um, BDS loyalty oath crap, uh, in Arkansas, I pointed out that, uh, boycott, boycotts are fundamentally American and did a whole Boston Tea Party thing. I mean, I, I think that's, I mean, that's completely, that's completely fine to do, I think. But it's all of this wink, wink, nod, nod stuff. Like nobody's, I'm sorry. Like it's not, it's, it's not going to be me. It's like AOC tweeted something about how to like get around abortion restrictions. If you're in one of these states with the trigger laws and somebody like one of these other conservative Congress people or something quote, you know, screen grabbed and was like, AOC is doing this. And AOC retweeted it like, so, you know, but that's, you know, what she's advocating for isn't illegal. It's stuff like, you know, order the plan B from another state or whatever. So far it's not illegal. They're working on it, but <laughs> so far that stuff isn't illegal, but there is this real snitch culture. And when you say something on the internet, you are then responsible for it. And like, none of this, I'm sorry. None of this should be, none of it should be happening on the internet. It, your, your instructions are not going to come from a podcast. The, the revolution will not be podcasted. <laughs> this is part of the reason why people need to have orgs because like all you're going to do is get a bunch of podcasters deplatformed. And it's not clear to me that podcasters are the people who should be giving advice about how to best disrupt capital in the first place. But I will, like I reached out to um, Jane uh, Meckel, um, why, why do I always do this to her name? Um, McKelvey, I don't know why I always do that to her name. Uh, about coming back on the podcast, you know, I, but even then, like I'm like a little bit at a loss. For who I mean, I guess we could see if Nader wants to come back on, but the 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 Solilinskis of the world, like we just are not like kind of shoulder to shoulder with people in an American context. We're not like chock full of people in an American context who are really spitting that game. That is also why, like I, I asked also Ajamu and Ben after the show, like, oh by the way, do you have any contacts for any abortion activists in Colombia because of what they were able to accomplish? You know, I think that the people we talk to might have to come from um, other countries because that's how depleted our resource mill is here for that sort of a thing. But I, I appreciate you calling in. I know you have to run. Oh, okay. Thank you so much for you. I think those are all great ideas. I would just, if I could just say one last thing, thank you so much for giving me so much time. But like, if I could say one last thing, I would just say that, uh, um, yes, using other countries, uh, activists, and quite frankly, sometimes like, you know, freedom fighters, I mean, like, you know, now and they're like reaching elected office. This is a crazy thing to like, you know, promote. But I was just going to say that uh, the uh, in you were talking about critiquing kind of like the attitude and the phrasing and the messaging of of uh, of uh, uh, protest language and stuff like that. Maybe just bringing in some protesters and be like, do you really think that waving your signs is going to bring about the change that you want? Have you ever considered these ideologies just on rising? I mean, not rising. Um, uh, bad faith. Sorry. Um, and, uh, like as guests and being like, kind of just like you were doing with politicians and being like, you really think this is going to work this time, you know, and kind of pushing them maybe to consider some other well, stuff. Yeah, what I, what I would love to do is have some org leadership on the show and ask them about their approach. But I got to say my success rate in doing that has been not yeah. great. Okay. 
you know? <laughs> so I would love to see, I don't know, Sunrise Leadership come on. I would love to see in a new leadership come on. I would love to talk to Sarah Nelson about the possibility. Like, if there's anything that people are willing to go on strike for, is it not going to be this? And, and it's not yeah. – obviously, it's not my job to tell – the flight attendants or the nurses or climate activists, what their priorities should be. But I think a lot of folks are, you know, are saying, okay, it's, it's going to be about labor. You know, it's going to be about organizing. Stop calling for a general strike. It's not on you. And I'm like, great. Who, who has the potential to, to do those kinds of things? Who has the potential to obstruct capital? And if they're not willing to come on the show, slash if they're willing to come on but none of them are willing to actually obstruct capital then we should know that because we're all kind of sitting around twiddling our thumbs expecting that the person who has all the authority and ability to do so is actually going to act and if they don't then the question is no longer oh am i then the best person position to do it shouldn't it be an org if it's not going to be the org and we really feel like things are that desperate and that situations as exigent as we all say it is and women are going to die and the climate's going to die and here comes fascism and all that stuff well then even if it doesn't work i'm sorry at a certain point the moral imperative is to people for people to start freelancing it just is it is yeah Exactly. I, I think I think you're so right. I think like looking at the Black Lives Matter thing, did that just come out of an org or I'm talking about no Floyd protest. That was, <laughs> that was like, organic. That, that was organic. Exactly. So maybe like having a Feeney back on. I don't know. I think you've had her on at least maybe a couple times. But um, but talking about like all the stuff I'm seeing on social media, people like you're saying, disseminating all this information about like remove this stuff from your profile. Make sure to write this number on your arm. All this kind of social things that aren't coming from any sort of higher up thing. But it's this ground. It's kind of this utopian thing we're always talking about where it's like this democratically disseminated information that's like no, you know, organizing structure. But it's like this organic response from the populace. And it's contagious. Like the more people that go, it's like you text your friends and you're like, I'm going to this. Are you going to this? That's how I feel like those protests really took off. So just talking to you know, just anyone who's like can speak to that. I think that would be powerful, although that would be difficult maybe to find. But thank you so much, Bree, for giving me all this time. You take care. Thank you. You too, Clifford. Bye. Bye bye. Okay, Eric. How you doing, not cousin Eric? <laughs> hey, Bree, I'm doing good. What's on your mind? So one of the things like again, one of the things I kind of bring up a little um constantly on here is this idea of acceleration. And all the people who were talking about how, like, were, like, talking about how people are just being accelerate. Uh, I forget the term, but, like... Accelerationist? You know, Accelerationist. Mm-hmm. And I'm, like, all of that stuff is happening now. Like, if you just look at all the, like... We're talking about Roe v. Wagan overturned, which mm-hmm. was factors, but the Miranda rights, one that got overturned, mm-hmm. so cops don't have to read Miranda rights anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the one with the border agency, mm-hmm. the border patrol, that's just like the fact that you can't like, if they just come up into your house with, if you're in their jurisdiction and they beat you up pretty much, mm-hmm. sue them. Mm-hmm. The one that, je- I'm not sure if you heard about it, but the one that we knew was going to go this way with the coach um, praying in the, the mm-hmm. school. And it's just like all of these things that they kept saying that, you know, if you were if you're being an accelerationist, this is what's going to happen. It's happening already. Yeah, the Democratic Party ended up being the real accelerationist by doing fuck all for the last year and a half. I'm like, and that's what they, I, I keep trying to tell people. They're the acceleration when you don't do anything. And you just 
let the like you just and you just hope the fact that oh Republicans are so evil that people are going to you know get it and what they don't understand is on like I think a lot of people the vast majority of people it's weird to say this but you know what there there there's a level of comfort that they are not willing to get out of yeah and yeah it, it's not for me to say. <laughs> If you're looking at them preferences this every time. It's really not for me to say. However, as people all issued their accelerationism takes and Chomsky accused me, I mean, you know, people accused me after the Chomsky conversation of being an accelerationist. And obviously everybody who didn't vote for Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton was accused of being an accelerationist, yada, yada, yada. It always struck me as being true. And I said this to Chomsky that there is a real privilege in not wanting to be an accelerationist. And the people who are most panicked about that possibility are not, in fact, the poor people that are always used as human shields by people who don't want accelerationism but write articles about that fact in uh, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, or what have you. It It is people with relative privilege who want to maintain the status quo. And a lot of other folks that are happy to kind of put a little heat under the fire of this situation because they know how unbearable the status quo really is. And when I was talking to Chomsky in that now famous interview, my point was that it always does seem to be that the people who are already harmed are already hurting, just get grandfathered in and grandfathered in as new emergencies come about. And it's not that the new emergencies aren't very bad and we shouldn't care about them very, very, very much and fight solidaristically to keep those things from happening. Whether it's, you know, what happened to Trump, the border crisis, the Muslim ban, all of these kinds of things. But it is also anti-solidaristic and really shitty to pretend like all the people who have been suffering throughout before Trump came and started walking through the country, swinging a mace over his head, wreaking havoc here, there and elsewhere to, to pretend like those people should just have to sit tight while the newest thing getting smashed um, is resolved. And I'm not saying that like I'm an advocate of accelerationism because the per- the person who like lights the fire has to be responsible for all of the consequences, including that it might not actually lead to the political outcomes you hope it leads to. However, the people who are saying incrementalize this, do incrementalism, also have blood on their hands, and it it frustrates me that the conversation is always asymmetric and there's never any accounting of the people who have their uh, incrementalist blood on their hand. It's, it is it is the trolley problem. It is people thinking they're not guilty if they just let the train run over all the people who are already in the train's path. And one of the things, like I've always, every time I see a new thing happen, some new horrible thing happen, I always just have in my back ahead, oh, it's not bad enough yet. It's like even with I even to just write this thing, I don't. I think give it give it a month. I don't think people are going to be protesting anymore for Roe v. Wade. I think mm. give, it, give it two months. I don't, because I'm like, it's not bad enough yet. I, it, yeah. And it's one of the people at a point where, where I, it sucks because I, I always go back to the climate change. I don't think we're going to do anything serious about climate change until literally a major city is underwater in this country. Well, that's what I believe. I'm like, and I just hope that it's not too late. That's the only. Well, that's one. that's why my mother bought this big house in Cleveland for all of us to bunker down in. <laughs> that's literally what she says. She's like, Brianna, I don't know if it's the end times or not, but I I got a house in Cleveland where all the kids can have a bedroom now. So. 
that's that's the contingency plan. Let's just hope Lake Erie doesn't rise so much that you know Shaker Heights is underwater. So, and it's just one of those things. Like I try to find some way, like because I because one of the things that I think because I look at these books, I'm one of those people. Like, don't tell me if you're going to go out and protest. I'm not someone who's just going to walk up and down street. I'm, that's not me. Mm-hmm. Stopping major traffic. If we're not going to a major highway where goods come through and they're getting a thousand people to stop that and saying no goods are going to come into New York City until X, Y, and Z happens. And then if you rest all thousand us, we got 2,000 more people coming to replace us. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not down for that. Because that's I- the plan, right? That's like, okay, even if I can't be there, I can start ordering pizzas to the line, water bottles to the line. You know, we, we can have spreadsheets going and organize trade off, trade off shifts, send tents to the line, blankets and things for inclement weather. Like that feels like an ongoing project that you can continue to be invested in and also get to know members of your community because you're all showing up there together over and over and over again. And I think about, and one of the things I realized is when you even look at some of the protests going around, when you start seeing the police abuse that goes on, the police are doing that because they're afraid. You see the fear in their eyes. And I remember this wasn't doing for Rovier. There was another protest. I forgot what it was for that happened. Mm. And they were about to, they grabbed a person and they were about to arrest them. And just a sea of people encirculated the police. There was like three or four of the police people encirculated by these, a sea of people. And they were able to get the person from being arrested because the police couldn't do anything. Mm. So there's also like anything that happens, there has to also be kind of like training that happened during the civil rights movement where they went to training, you know, when they were going to do their sit-ins mm-hmm. and everything like that. Also maybe have to be certain type of trainers. Like when we go out, the police will come and they will stop us from going certain places, but we're going to keep marching ahead. And this is how we're going to keep marching ahead. This is the way formation that we need to do. This is the, the tactic that we need to have. And we need to have like, and our hardcore people are going to be up front. And we're just going to, cause there's most, a lot of these protests outnumbers the police. Yep. And I got to tell you, I, I was heartened when I got home and was looking at the coverage and I see the protests in other parts of the country were a lot more uh, rebellious, shall we say, than the one I was in in D.C. And maybe it got more gully after I left. I don't know. After the sun went down. But um, where I was, the police were chilling. Let me tell you, there was this one moment. It was so cinematic. I was like, how do I even put this into words? I had walked away to the end of the block so I could take my mask off and get some air and drink my water bottle. And I was sitting there just taking in the scene. And this man rolls up with this large keyboard. And as he comes up, he's playing um, Stevie Wonder. Uh, um, what song? Some song from the Songs of the Key Life that I'm blocking right now because I'm tired. But it's about like it's going to be all right, basically. And I thought that it was – it felt like a supportive message to the protest. And I was like, good. I had this thought like, oh, I'm so glad music is coming because sometimes these things feel so serious and so like not fun to be at. And I know that sounds a little counterintuitive because obviously it is very serious. But I think there is this cultural aspect of it. And Trump gets this at the rallies. I mean there's music. He has the same group of songs that they play over and over again. There's a sense of community. There's T-shirts. I mean, you know, he he gets that the, the spectacle of it all. And I thought, like, I wish we had more protest music. I wish it was like the 60s. Oh, don't you worry about a thing. I think it was playing. 
Okay. So then he sets, once he gets closer to the main rally, though, it becomes clear that he maybe is going to try to like overpower sound wise the speakers. So people start to get upset with him and confront him. At which point he gets on his microphone and starts talking about how we all need to be one and this isn't divisive and da 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 da. And so this crowd, which feels impotent, there's cops everywhere. This is right in front of the Capitol building. The cops are very nonchalant. They're not really on alert. They're chill because it's just a bunch of like Warren voters standing around and nobody really feels like pressed. The crowd in all of their impotence starts really going in on this guy who truly I think wouldn't have been a problem if everyone had just ignored him. But it felt like this is all we can do. So at the same time that they're going in on him, the sun is setting. It's like golden hour, and it feels like a set piece in a film. Athena and I, are. she joins me, and we're sitting down on the curb talking about our frustrations. All of a sudden, someone throws a big tarp in front of us and starts pouring liquid on it. We look at each other and realize what's happening, like someone's about to try to light this on fire. And we spring up and sprint away. And what had happened was someone had an anti-abortion rights flyer with like fetuses and whatever on it. And someone had snatched it from them, pro-choice people, and were going to light it on fire. There was a tussle. They got it back. So then they set up their big fetus flyer and more people come over to just argue with them over loud competing bullhorns about abortion. Again, what felt like this expression of discontent that this couldn't be put anywhere else but to argue at like these three anti-choice protesters who again nobody would have paid attention to if you just let them sit on the corner by themselves because like no one gives a shit about them they're not actually powerful right they're not the ones who did this and i was just looking at it all and looking at all of this energy and all of this feeling and all of this angst and all of this sincere commitment and compassion for other people being channeled into these incredibly useless ways and it was just very beautiful like like visually very beautiful (laughs) and scenic as the sun is going down behind the Capitol, and the 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 guy started playing like classical music the the original keyboard guy and it really it was like so surreal you know what i mean it was just so surreal and I, i i don't know man like there's fences and police officers who are nonchalant, people screaming at each other furiously. The the anti-abortion people had like a swastika poster. I mean, the whole thing was all over the place. And then through it all, it's just like Chopin. And playing. it goes it kind of all circles around and it goes back to the same thing you've said before and other people have said. Biden, Kamala, they are not afraid of the Democratic voter. AOC... Uh, Ilan Omar, I don't think they're really afraid. I think they're good people, like AOC, Ilan Omar, the squad. I think, you know, they're good people and everything, but they are not afraid of the people who put them in office. They are not concerned at all about any of that. And because of that, you know, they can just do kind of whatever they want. We have to rely on them to be the igniter. And sometimes I feel like we need to ignite them. They, they, we shouldn't be relying on them to ignite. Yes, that should be the lesson of anything from today's episode, right? Like the only reason, you know, Francia's VP is because she was made to be that. They weren't going to elect Petro without her, says, you know, Ajamu. And I'm not sure if you showed, there was a video that they showed of her where um, the, the other, v, the, the, the current VP was leaving 
and she was coming out, and you saw her shake the hands of all the like, you guess the maids, the the, the people mm. in service, and you see the the former VP just walk by, but she's shaking each one of those art, those working class people's hands. Mm. Which means she has a connection to a working class, and the working class in Colombia sees something in her, where. She's not someone that you can just ignore. I, I don't. I'm not sure how VPs work in Colombia, but I don't think she's a voice that the current president, the new president, can just ignore. They're gonna have to listen to her because if she wants to, she might be able to just tear some shit up. Yeah. Well, I told you. I described in the episode this video. I wish there was a way. I mean, it's a podcast, so it was a little weird to like just show the video clip, especially since you know it's in Spanish. But the um. That that moment when Petra was like, <laughs> "We're gonna like we're gonna uphold capitalism," she cut him some eyes. I'm telling you, <laughs> she looked at him and he had to respond like physically, like assure her with his hand, and then also say, "Oh, it's not because we love capitalism. We just got to get through this." And I was like, "All right, they're about to have some conversations." She's no, she's no uh, Kamala Harris. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that there was a conversation between the two of them where she took that role and she was like. I need certain, uh, you know, concessions from you to be your VP, to give you a certain level of, you know, status with mm-hmm. the um, ultra left uh, in Colombia. But the last thing I'll say before I go is uh, when all this happened on Friday, I was listening to uh, Ryan and Emily talk about this. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry. I like Robbie, actually, even though I think he's a libertarian and libertarians annoy the hell out of me because I think <laughs> they like to call us delusion. I think libertarians are some of the most delusional people about their ideologies that I've ever seen in the world. I'm like, there's no way any of that's going to work. Because if we do libertarianism, some big corporations is going to come in, gain mm-hmm. all the power, and just run us however they want to run us. So I'm like, libertarianism doesn't work. You're just being delusional. But usually, they, they, you know, they're anti-war. You know, they don't like imperialism. I, You know, Robbie says some stuff. Emily mm-hmm. scares the shit out of me. I, I confess, I haven't, I don't, you know, watch any kind of relig- religious way. Is there a particular, I mean, what was being said? It was her, when she talks about, like, how just, because she, she's one of the few people, which I kind of give her credit, she'll just, she, she's one of the few people that just straight up admits, like, no. I believe that life begins at conception, this is where it is, and and she will admit that, yes, it sounds insane when I say that life begins at a conception. I know it sounds insane. She'll say things like, I know this sounds cruel. Mm. And if you know it sounds cruel, that means in the back of your head, you know it is cruel. Is she but Catholic? I don't think, I think she's not even religious, if I remember correctly. Yeah, here, here's the thing about that. I mean, and there's a lot of conversation about the establishment clause right now because of these other cases, the kneeling football case, uh, the... Um, I mean, Roe v. Wade, obviously, but there are a bunch of these cases that just came down to implicate uh, separation between church and, church and state. And I got to say, okay, okay, you got to be able to come up with a re- – like, I respect your vibes and your opinions. You don't mm. get to decide law for the rest of the country – based on your vibes and your feelings. You have to articulate an argument for Christ's sake. Like you, and that argument has to not be religious in nature. So like, yeah. if, if you're one of these people who's like, okay, um, 
viability it should be earlier than viability because uh there here's some scientific evidence that a fetus can feel pain at this point okay i might not agree with you but like that's a sciencey reason that has nothing to do with whatever what your happens, religious belief system is with you know the advancement in technology we have able to you know you know increase viability from let's say 25 weeks to 18 weeks because yeah. you know when the fetus oh yeah yeah I but that's why i mean that's why we say viability so yeah. that's an automatic but grandfathered in but so like i can deal with different kinds of explanations and I, and if the court were to credit those for some reason and say it's like uh i don't know it's like um uh cruel and unusual you know it's it's torture to abort a fetus when it can feel pain and therefore da, da, da. i will not agree with that but okay well i just you gotta lose a win or lose that one on the merits but all of this life shit where the life is defined purely in religious terms you know it's and not what- a life it's i got tumors and if you cut them out of me they're not alive. There's all kinds of things growing on a person that aren't alive. You don't just get to say, hey, vibes, I think it's alive. It's not alive. It, it, once a month, <laughs> I eject a potential gr- and it's not alive. Because what kills me is that when you say that life begins at conception, I'm like, do you do realize that naturally eggs can be, because first of all, for uh, I'm like, this is like basic biology that we learned. Once the egg, just because an egg is fertilized, does not mean it's going to be implanted in the utero lining. And that's what needs to happen for it to take. There's a lot of times where eggs get fertilized and they just don't implant. So it's killing a whole bunch of babies. Of course. But the the main point I'm trying to make, though, is that so many there's so little interrogation of why people believe what they want to believe. And it's not interrogated. People are making obviously religious arguments and just not saying the word God. And nobody is forcing them to come up with words and reasons that justify their beliefs. Cause if they did, there's just, there's no justifying it other than vibes. I believe this is not a legal argument. I believe I have a million dollars. Guess what? I don't <laughs> like, it means nothing. And that's what's so, I think the, in some ways the, all of the establishment cause cases are freaking me out more than anything else, because it does seem part and parcel of this bigger trend. I don't know if you saw Lauren Bulbert, like I'm reluctant to give her any air, but she was just on a, um, where was it? She was on some stage somewhere talking about she doesn't believe in church and state, the separation of church and state. She's just, she, she said it. She's just saying it. She said that the church should lead the state. You know, and that's, that's where their vanguard of their party is going. And the vanguard of our party is like, me, I don't think that we should open abortion clinics on federal lands because it might hurt the fifis of uh, Lauren, Liz Cheney voters in the fall. I would say, oh my God, I would, uh, I would, I would love for them to just open up an abortion clip on the federal land and dare one of those states to say anything or do anything, and then send the national guard down there. Yep. But this has been great. You're always awesome, Bree. You have a good one. Thank you. You too, Eric. All right, Samuel, you're up next. What's on your mind? Can you unmute yourself, Samuel? Okay, Samuel uh, canceled himself. <laughs> Edu, you're up next. What's on your mind? Oh, hi, Bri. Um, hi, my name is Edu. Um, it's my first time I'm calling, uh, and I'm really happy to like 
be able to participate. And uh, I want to appreciate the work that you do, especially covering Latin American politics. I wish um, you did more of that. Um, so I hope this is just a beginning with the, the podcast that you did on Colombia. Um, so I, I would like to apologize with the rest of the audience because I like to deviate a little bit uh, of, uh, from the topic that people are talking about on the recent uh, Supreme Court just, justice decision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's about Latin America. And, uh, and it's especially kind of like how, the US, how certain uh, podcasters and independent journalists cover Latin America. And it's, uh, it's a thing that uh, I find that to start with, we have very few people doing that. So <laughs> that's a problem. So when it comes to interviewing someone, you tend to interview the same people. Um, mm-hmm. and so you don't get a diverse um, kind of set of opinions or analysis that they've done from the region. <clears throat> so, but my main point here is about like freedom of speech. I think like um, if we talk about ideas, I agree with you, with uh, Ben, with everyone on like the on the left on progressive uh, meet uh, you know like uh, Twitterverse to to say to put it like in those words. Um, you know, I think. You know that just the cause for Julian Assange is it's 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 an unjust thing that like he's going through, and you know our our duty as citizens is to denounce it and to you know like call for his release. <clears throat> the same thing with what happened to the um, the journalist who was killed by the Israeli army. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also that's also a cause that you know we all have the right, the duty, sorry, to uh, to call for you know and to ask for justice. And but. Uh, you know, uh, I think like sometimes like a lot of progressives say, oh, well, you know, there are so many issues in the world that we don't uh, we don't have the capacity to to focus or to discuss. And we only have the duty to call for the ones that the U.S. is engaging. And I see that as a very um, reasonable like uh, justification. But however, um, I think like sometimes when some of these uh, journalists cover for the detrimental of the of of the causes in other countries is actually abhorrent to me. And I'm speaking specifically a little bit about Ben Norton's coverage of Nicaragua's crisis. We have more than a hundred journalists in exile in Costa Rica. Mm. People are using like, uh, you know, their phones, you know, like you bring, you know how hard it is to go independent with you using your own, you know, like uh, small resources, few resources that you can't afford as, as corporate media does. And mm-hmm. these journalists, uh, exiled journalists from Nicaragua are all in Costa Rica, some of them in Mexico, some of them in the U.S., uh, you know, doing cleaning toilets, uh, working in the service industry because they're not employable as journalists in the U.S., unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And the fact is like that Ben Norton's coverage of the situation in Nicaragua, when he goes to like state media, like if you, I mean, don't believe me, just go to YouTube and Google his, uh, to put his name and put Channel 13 or Channel 6. He is like giving interviews or interviewing the journalists that like work for the government, but he never dares to t- interview a journalist for, for, that is in exile. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, how can we? And, and also, 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 just want to say this also with the gray zone. You know, I'm, I also support. I mean, I'm against what they're doing to them. You know, of trying to censor them. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the way to debate them, and I will expect them. Or, you know, they have the same courtesy with other journalists who are in exile and who are also victims of uh, repression and not not use their platform to actually, like, 
uh, flashback at them. Because like, mm-hmm. if you go to the Greystones website, you know, Ben Norton's articles are about like portraying a bad image of some of the journalists, which are just like two or three of them. But the, the reality is that there are more than 100. And can, how can you deny the fact that you have more than 100 journalists in exile, you know, and then you call, you like use your platform to advance the government's interest. Last thing I say on this part before you make a comment um, is that, um, you know, it's okay that you say, okay, I'm an anti-imperialist and, you know, like I, I, I also am an anti-imperialist. I don't have a problem with that, but don't try to sugarcoat or like to say also that they're progressive. Um, you know, that they advance uh, government's policy, uh, you know, like uh, the people's uh, interests. Because one thing, is, one thing is like, you know, like uh, to sort of use uh, Latin American's politics or like these elections as a proxy to sort of say, uh, advance your own anti-imperial interests, which I think is fine. But another thing is just to like uh, ignore, uh, you know, the abuses that like some of these governments, unfortunately, like, perpetrate on upon their population mm. so um i do have a problem with that that like we're not able to keep a coherence in our arguments and you know using the playing with your words of like you actually i mean i don't want to call it out i want them to like explain mm-hmm. the reason but it seems like some of the the articles or whatever they say uh to advance the government's interest it's in a bad phase for me so i'm i'm really interested to hear that i, I you know i can't speak from any personal experience. What I will say is two things. One, I know that Ben has a show or is starting a show on Colin, and I would encourage you to talk to him directly about it. Um, and I'd be interested to, to listen to that conversation and see what he has to say. I suspect that he will probably be open to it. And if at some point you want to kind of have a conversation about it, I'm happy to host and moderate or what have you, if that's helpful to anybody involved, but also, you know, this is this, you know, sucky and, you know, it's on me and America, Americans in general for having some such limited language skills compared to much of the rest of the world. But part of the issue that I've heard and I've experienced is finding journalists to talk who, you know, especially for a podcast format can give the interview in English it's one thing if you're a television show, right? And you can do subtitles on the bottom before a podcast, you know, it's, it's difficult. And in fact, when I first reached out to Ajama Baraka, it wasn't to have him on the show. It was to ask him if he knew any journalists because he lives in Colombia who were local and would be willing to come and talk to me. And his issue was that most people, like he was having trouble coming with people we're English speaking. And it was the same with Ben Norton. I asked them both like, Hey, I would love to talk to a Colombian journalist. And I know that you're saying beyond that, not just a Colombian journalist or not just a Nicaraguan journalist, but journalists who are more marginalized in exile, you know, have been targeted by the state and what have you. And I agree with all of that. But, you know, from my perspective, it was like even like a first order issue of couldn't even was struggling to find, to source even someone who literally lives in Colombia and covers it locally because of the language barrier. And again, I know that, I mean, that's on me and all of us for not learning other languages. <laughs> no, no, I, I mean, but, I know, yeah. No, I understand that. And that's why I, I tried, to, I made that long preface because I understand that there is like, there are limitations in terms of like the space, the amount, the people, to cover all kinds of issues that we all are interested in. And I think like uh, my, my kind of main awakening in 2020 was like 
about like you know these things about uh, freedom of speech, the Medicare for all, um, and you know like how you have been you know uh, you know just like criticized by by the establishment Democrats if you criticize the Democratic Party and you highlight a kind of okay point by the conservatives, you know. And I made that preface about like my own credential to some extent, because the thing is, if I say something like, you know, Ben said it in your podcast, like he said, if, you know, that uh, Petro is not as uh, progressive as Hugo Chavez. And why did he say that? He meant it because he was not as anti-imperial. But Petro is very progressive. He, you know, like has been supporting uh, a lot of like... uh, uh, you know, socially progressive agendas like the abortion and uh, same-sex marriage, uh, you know, like the climate change. And, you know, like uh, in Nicaragua, for instance, like uh, Ortega, he um, he made a pact with the Catholic Church. And, uh, and you know, in Nicaragua, used to, abortion used to be uh, legal only if the, if the life of the mother was in danger. Mm-hmm. But, so very limited, restricted, restriction, I mean... Uh, openness and he like Ortega made a pact with the Catholic Church to like completely made it illegal in all sorts of accounts and we know that abortion is a class issue it's not like an ideological issue so how can you you know because the people who have money and I know people who have money and and, and got uh, uh, abortion uh, you know have access to abortion if they have the money and it's the same reality everywhere in the U.S. as well Um, and then but then like you know when it comes to like um you know, like uh, say that you cannot say that the government is progressive if if you say those things. I like the one thing, and I know that there there are these limitations. And I wish, for instance, I could go with like my full name and my full like uh, credential. But the fact is that I could uh, be persecuted, uh, you know, like by the Nicaraguan government. So like, uh, you know, like I. I'm a, I'm I'm fortunate to be an English speaker and to be and to engage uh, in in all the sorts of debates in English and Spanish, mm-hmm. and, and I wish to educate the U.S. Uh, population uh, on these topics. But the fact is that like putting myself out there with my real identity can uh, you know mean a problem for me. And Ben knows that, yeah. and and it's unfortunate that like you know um, he's using that platform. Um, to sort of misguide some of the people that he, some of his audience. Uh, and do you think I'm it's intentional, saying, or do you think he doesn't? He I don't know if it's in, I don't know. I don't know if it's intentional or not. He lives in Nicaragua. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like people can like. I mean, I'm not saying to, to believe me. I just uh, I'm putting out there to like have an open mind when it comes to like listening to his uh, opinion or his analysis, especially regarding Nicaragua. I don't know about like. I cannot say like you know the coverage in other parts of the world. I'm I'm not gonna say that. I can only like fact check him on Nicaragua. People can read his articles that he wrote on the Gray Zone and then you know fact check it with the reality. But the fact is that you know there are things that are so obvious that we say if we call it for the release of us Julian Assange and we're talking about freedom of speech, why are we ignoring 100 journalists who are in exile, in Nicaraguan journalists who are in exile in, in Costa Rica? And instead, you go to the state uh, media and you like hang out with like uh, you know the state-sponsored journalists, and then like um, you know you only highlight the good things about the government. Um, it seems that seems to be a bit odd. Um, so um, 
you know, I, I wish he was like, I, I, that's why I joined your calling today because you said that he was going to be in. Unfortunately, he's not. Um, you know, but uh, the last thing I say um, is that uh, one book that I really, really uh, enjoyed uh, and I recommend that it's about freedom of speech, you know, when it comes, when it clashes your ideologies or your political like affiliation. It's this book by uh, uh, Salman Rushdie. It's called the 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 smile the jaguar the smile of the jaguar or the jaguar smile. Mm. Um, it, it's about uh, Rashman Rushdie. You know, he has been persecuted by a lot mm-hmm. of uh, governments by Iran, Pakistan, and you know, um, in, in the eighties he organized. He was he organized. Um, he was the head in London for the Nicaraguan um, friends of Nicaragua. Like it was a coalition of people who wanted to help. The Nicaraguan government, when Reagan, you know, used uh, had this launched this like um, proxy war in Nicar- against the Nicaraguan government on just war, I, I I will say I will stress it. And then he made a trip to Nicaragua uh, because you know he loved the revolution and you know like he loved the ideals. And it was a little bit of a heartbreaking trip for him because. I'm spoiling the book. I'm sorry. Uh, it was a bit of a heartbreaking trip because in the end he realized that like. There is no freedom of speech in the country. For us, unjust as the war was against the Sandinistas, the the fact that the government, like you know, curtailed freedom of speech was a no-no for him. And I think like that kind of like dilemmas that you face in your life, like you are like very important questions that we must ask ourselves in these times. Mm-hmm. And you know, we at least you know, if we cannot do anything <laughs> for anyone, we at least try. Let's try to keep a live a principled life. I think that's. That's a good thing. And another, like, and I have a, uh, a speaker for you, like, if you would like to interview, like, you know, when it comes to uh, anti-imperialism and, you know, like, also, like, having, like, a like a rational view of, like, Latin America. His name is Stephen Kinzer. Uh, he was a former New York Times uh, correspondent in, in several countries around the world. And he is very anti-imperialist. Like, he's re- written lots of books. Uh, one about Nicaragua's, his uh, time in Nicaragua. And um, I, I think he, he can also give a very, like, uh, balanced view on, on things. And, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, he's a really cool guy. Uh, I've seen him a couple of times. Just that. All right. I, see that, I see that Stephen Kinzer is uh, at, is he at Brown now? I see that yes. he is a Leo who shares a birthday with Barack Obama. And I will be looking uh, to see whether he has a Twitter account or some other public way of contacting him. Oh, look, here's his Twitter. I'm going to follow and take a note to follow up. So thank you for all of that, uh, Edu. And I really do hope – I'm sorry. I think the technical stuff derailed everybody from coming into the chat, (laughs) pushing it by half an hour. I think there was some confusion. But I do hope you're able to talk directly um, to Benjamin at some point. Like I said, part of why he wanted to join tonight was to tell people about his new show on Colin. So there's no better venue to speak directly to people who you have concerns or pushback for. So I hope you do that. And thank you again for calling in. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Hendrix, you're up next. What's on your mind? Hi, Bree. Can you hear me? I can. Wow. So cool. Um, so, uh, first time calling, I'm calling from Boston and a couple of things. One, um, the, um, I have a recommendation for someone to talk to about worker cooperatives. 
um, I was happy to hear the the guy who called um, a couple of days ago uh, from the employee stock ownership plan side of the employee ownership movement. Um, and Esteban Kelly is the director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. And um, I've been really inspired by his work for many years. And uh, he's a really fun person and super knowledgeable about politics and um, workplace democracy. And it's kind of it's relevant to other conversations that um, that you've had on the podcast and just kind of feeling of being feeling kind of dejected with electoral politics. Um, and one of the frameworks that has really helped me feel more um, excited and hopeful about organizing is a resist and build framework where it's just like, you know, we need to be, it's very, it's a pretty simple idea, but just that we need to be resisting. There are resist efforts and we need to be building, um, you know, building at, at the same time as we're resisting and dismantling um, the infrastructure and systems that aren't working for us. We need to be simultaneously building um, the economies and societies and cultures that we do want to be reliant on and living within. And I think the worker co-op movement, it really exemplifies that build side. And there's a lot of really exciting um, conversations and like actions and strategies in, in that sector. Okay. Thank you for the recommendation. Can you say the name again? Yeah. His name is Esteban Kelly. And, um, yeah, he's the, he's the director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, which is a network of worker-owned businesses across the country. Um, he also is, uh, he is like a, a mediator, facilitator. He's done a lot of work in restorative justice in Philadelphia. Um, he's been all over the place. Oh, he follows me. This is easy. Nice. Love, love yeah. a guest you can just DM. Thank you for that. I appreciate you calling in. And then I have a question, actually, that's unrelated. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm i 30, um, and I was in fifth grade when we invaded Iraq, and I remember it just, like, feeling like the world was falling apart. I remember being really stressed out about it as a kid. And um, I kind of have always had this, you know, yeah, well, this feeling that, you know, everything is, you know, going to shit. So like what else is new? Um, and I, I guess I'm curious from your perspective, um, do you think that we are in a worse situation? Like, do you think that things are worse than they were in 2003? Um, cause I, I really, I love your, I, I love your thinking and, and I, yeah, I would, I'm just, just struggling with this perspective because I have this feeling that things aren't worse because things have always been bad it feels like um and I'm just trying to get some perspective on that specific specifically like the thing that's tripping me up is is the sending of billions of dollars of weapons to Ukraine um and just you know feeling feeling like wow like Marjorie Taylor Greene is the only <laughs> Is she really the person that is standing up against this? Like, what a ludicrous 
situation we're in um, and feeling like, yeah, I, I kind of have this feeling that sending weapons to Ukraine is just as unjustified as invading Iraq. And I'm wondering if you think that's true. Um, I do think things are worse today. I think, I mean, in terms of the ultimate spend, I mean, in 2003, there wasn't a, you know, the perspective of <laughs> how much we were actually going to spend on these wars. But the reason I would say I think that things are worse today is because the economy is worse. Um, you were coming out of the Clinton years, which were a boom. I, I'm not saying that uh, oftentimes presidents aren't really responsible for these things, but he happened to preside over an upswing. Um, the world dramatically changed in 2008 in a way that weirdly everyone feels, but no one really talks about as a watershed moment. It was very much all swept kind of under the rug. Talking about it too much seemed to be a weird criticism of Obama. Obama seemed to be getting beat up, beat up on too much. And a lot of us felt protective of him while he was president. And then we woke up one day and Trump was president. And we never really had a reckoning with what happened during the housing crisis you know, what was it? You know, Americans lost like 40% of their, I think it was on whole 30% of their wealth. I think black Americans, it was 40% of their wealth. I mean, it was such a devastating thing to happen. I graduated that year or in 2007, the year before headed into law school, the same month as the financial crash. And it very much felt like my, my personal opportunities, my professional opportunities changed radically at that moment. People were politicized in a different way. I think in part because of the realization that something uh, permanent had changed with the social contract. The last time we had a minimum wage wait, raise was in 2009. So the gap between, um, uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Efficiency or what do you call it? Um, Labor. Uh, how, how, Labor. yeah, but like the, I'm just the sorry, losing the word for it. When your productivity, the sorry, the pro, the gap between productivity and how much workers actually own has only you know grown. Um, people have are, have become more and more productive and efficient, and it hasn't been reflected in wages. Obviously, inflation has meant that the cost of homes and colleges have exponentially grown at the same time that wages have remained flat. We're in this current inflation spike where. You know, the fact that we have had, haven't had a wage raise and all of this time is being felt especially acutely, you know, it's, it's hard for me to come up with a metric by which we have improved. And even when we're looking at Ukraine, it's like, I don't know, we're just, we're at the beginning of it, just like we were at the beginning of um, the Iraq war in 2003. I don't know. What do you think? Um, yeah, first, like, maybe it's a defense mechanism, but my gut feeling is that, um, like, I th it feels like there's there's always this, there's always a crisis. Um, ever since I can remember, there's, it, it like, politics is in crisis. Um, and so I think I have this kind of, like, desensitized response almost. Um, and it's really hard for me to gauge um yeah, yeah, from a feeling-based perspective. Um, I mean, another question is, what difference yeah. does it make? <laughs> you know, what difference does it make? Does it, I mean, does it matter? I mean, there are a million metrics. It's like the thing that conservative conservatives often do 
is to point to broad trends of improvement. You know, there's fewer people living under a dollar a day. We have new scientific innovations that make life easier, better in various ways. You know, all those kinds of things, you know, slavery is over. <laughs> like they point to those kinds of things and say, well, like use it, use it as an excuse to say, why are you complaining? Right. So there was a way that sometimes these comparisons between the past and the present can obscure the problems that exist in the present. Like, you know, the conservatives will say things like, well, it's not like schools are segregated. We had Brown v. Board. So like, how could you possibly say that things haven't improved since the 1960s? And I would agree that I, th I think that liberals should stop making those kinds of arguments even though you can, like you can definitely argue that schools are definitely as segregated as they were in 1960. Most black kids go to schools that are like 95% black or more. Like that is a thing. And you can argue that, but also I just don't think it's, I mean, it, it I think it's weirdly disrespectful to people living in segregated America. And also every, you can, you can make a case that things still need improvement without pretending like zero things have changed. It's just, you cannot, there's no winning argument that zero things have changed for the better. So I'm not saying that you're doing that, but I do sometimes resist those kinds of comparisons just because they are often used to, you know, obscure what needs to be done in the present. No. Yeah. Yeah. That, no, that makes sense. Um, I think specifically the things on my mind that I'm not sure if they're different are um, the military industrial complex. And, and I think the, well, the, the issue that's coming up a lot now is this fascism thing, which I think I maybe don't understand entirely conceptually, but like, I don't, are we closer to fascism now than we were under Bush? Um, uh, uh, I, it feels like it, but of course, Oh, I think I lost you. Sorry, I'm sorry. I messed that up. I don't know what happened. My apologies. Oh, okay. I guess oh, okay. I'm just talking to myself. Um, I was just saying that my mother, I don't know how much you heard, uh, but that my mother, uh, we left the country in 92 in part because she felt this same level. She said she felt, it felt very similar to how it felt when Biden got elected because it felt like most of the liberal world was celebrating when it seemed clear to her that it was um a kind of election that was going to prolong the status quo in a way that felt really dispiriting, almost more dispiriting in ways than like a Trump getting elected because at least everyone then is activated and, you know, going to the airport to help people stranded by the Muslim ban and banding together and all of that kind of stuff. 
And so it does feel less like maybe the question is, is it better or worse? And are we in these cyclical patterns um, that come because we never reach this tipping point? Because, it, you know, this, the establishment tends to give us enough to, like, solve the wound and get everybody back into their homes. I mean, I recorded an episode today for Thursday, and I think it was really good, and I hope you guys enjoy it. But we're talking about housing issues, and we end up in this not not really sidetracked, but in this conversation for a while about the moral implications of needing to be a property owner in order to ha- be able to survive until old age because pensions are over and how that forces you to invest in a system that prioritizes property protection because that's your only nest egg in the whole wide world and how that affects our broader politics up, down, left, right, and center because everyone is conscripted into a system whether they want to be a property owner or not where they feel like they have to do it for survival. And now we all have this landlord mentality brain. You know, yeah, and that's that's the way the system works. They feel, figure out a way to, like, give you just enough and suck you back right. in. They and this feels like, yeah. And this feels like an opportunity with millennials having these low homeownership rates, with the Gen Zers being so damn woke and fabulous in all of these ways, you know, to that the social contract hasn't paid off for enough people that maybe folks are willing to tear the whole thing down. Maybe, or maybe they'll do a little injection of a little something, something into the economy. Maybe they'll even cancel some student debt and maybe that'll be enough to get everybody to go back into the, the keyboard mines <laughs> and keep, you know, Blue collar, white coloring it for another 10, 20, 30 years. There you go. Yeah, the one, another cool thing about the worker co op movement is that there's a lot of conversation there about um, combining the dem- democratizing workplace strategies with um, taking housing off the speculative market and creating mm-hmm. land trust and mm-hmm. community owned housing infrastructure um, and kind of pairing that with yeah democratizing labor uh in in a solidarity economy movement mm. well i'll definitely be reaching out and i appreciate the suggestion hendrix yeah thanks for talking with me and i really appreciate your perspective always thank you all right i'm gonna go to adrian because he says he was kicked out of line if adrian is not representing himself truthfully you guys gotta drag him because this is an honor code situation <laughs> Drag me. <laughs> but I promise y'all, I was like on the line. Um, but a good friend of mine had called me and I was on another device trying to listen to both. And when I exited out, I realized now it just took me out of the queue. So thanks for, for you know, giving me a shout out or whatever, all this stuff. I didn't want to just say, it's like, I noticed the vibes are just low, like just kind of very chill tonight. And compared to like other nights when I might get onto the call in and it's like, we're doing this, look alive, people, we're kicking around. <laughs> Everybody's like, they are asking questions, but they're even still like, you know, da 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 da, okay, whatever. But tonight is just like, ugh, just like, oh my goodness. So I just really wanted to say, um, you've been talking a lot about like in past callings is not necessarily what was discussed tonight, but like you've been talking about like your experiences in these settings where there are conservatives, et cetera. And I just wanted to give you your flowers and your kudos and just be like, you're holding your own in there. And I was watching the debate between you and Liz about Medicare for all. 
And when I tell you, I was just like, why aren't, why isn't she getting it? Like, she was like, she was right up to the edge and then she started saying stuff that just didn't make sense. She was like, no, I agree with you. We should decouple healthcare from employment. <laughs> and then she was like, so we should put it on the private market. And I'm like, right. no, 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 slow down there. So it's like, let's go back from the beginning. And then she did it again. And then like, it's interesting because I don't know if it's like talking past one another in these conversations. And I experienced this in the world when I engage in political conversations with people. But the moment when you ask the question or when one asks the question about like, what are you going to do for people who can't afford it? Pop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is, and the response is right. And so they should be able to afford everything, buy everything on that private market, and they'll be able to pick and choose. And I'm like, right, but they can't. So they can't. what you gonna do about the fact that there are poor people in the world? <laughs> and then the response is right. And so that's why we're just like, <laughs> is this an SNL skit, or I need to look into the camera or something? I mean, like this is just. I have experiences with people and I'm watching you with it. I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. This isn't like, you know, Ashton Kutcher's about to pop, pop out or whoever that is and be like, you're punk, man. So, you know, kudos to you for, for really going and doing your job on Rising. And I will also say like, what's interesting about an episode I watched last week, I think you did with Robbie, where Robbie said something like, y'all were having a debate and he said, something to the effect of what we should do something about that and it was it struck me as odd because i'm like well you're a libertarian you don't want anybody mm-hmm. and your response i was like please say what policies would you support and then you asked the question and then it was just like oh <laughs> i don't really do it was just kind of like it's, a it's an immoral philosophy it's just immoral like, the, the, and I, you're so right to like drill down on the, that fundamental truth. And it camp, comes up over and over again in this housing episode too. Fundamentally, we're going to go around in circles with people until we ask that question. What are you going to do about the fact that there are people like, if you think it's their own fault, fine. What are you going to do about it? Do, do you come from some tradition where you believe in community, where you believe that you should help the poor because they're poor, because they're human beings, because they have value and worth? If so, hop on the Bernie train because we believe in human rights, a human rights framework, because every human life is valuable. You seem to think that about fetuses. Let me let me hip you to a thing called born people. <laughs> I, I value them and I value their ability to have basic food, shelter, happiness, you know, comfort, safety. You know, and if that doesn't work, at least can we talk about the children? <laughs> Somebody think about the children. Like, you got to come to grips with the fact that, like, one fifth of the homeless population are children. Like, you, you really got to reckon with the fact that the world that you've designed, that's all capitalism being free markety, has these horrible outcomes. And if you don't want to get off capitalism, okay, we're on different paths there, but at very least, we should be able to agree on a certain level of social safety net that protects these vulnerable people. And the fact that you can't even make those kind of commitments, you can't commit to building affordable housing, genuinely affordable housing. You can't commit to getting people out of a shelter system and into permanent housing. You can't commit to universal health care and that we should have a profit motive in health care and housing and some of these other sectors that provide items that we feel are fundamental human rights. That you don't want to have pro- uh, pro- like price any price caps on 
literal food in the middle of a crisis like this. You don't even want to raise the minimum wage. You want to suppress working people as a way to fix inflation instead of attacking corporate greed. Like we're not the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that part right there is the part where you have to really drill down and just, I mean, you hate to do it, but you all really do believe that children should be starving and not eating. And it is, it's to a point where I'm really trying to be nice about it, but I feel like I just should probably say it. And I think, you know, I'm like really struggling with this because I feel like part of the reason why we're not able to really make the growth in society that we should be able to is because nobody's being honest. Even the people who like mean well and want to do the right things are not being honest. I'm not being honest with you when I have a conversation and somebody's like, yeah, you know, I ha- I believe that people should get health care, but I mean, come on now, we can't give it to everybody and da 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 Right, like, but why? Like, but why? You know, and it's just like, I really just want to scream, you're a shitty person, come on now. And I, I don't mean that in an evil or mean way, I wish them well. And like, I can hear Dr. West in the background, like, insert brother or sister, whoever. You're like, you're a shitty person. Um, so it's just, it's, it's very difficult to navigate that. The other piece that I did want to say was like, um, and what is also even a challenge is these people who are giving pushback, who claim to care about costs, who claim to care about efficiency and all these other things. It's like, I'm literally on my, on my knees, just screaming, it'll be more efficient. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> like the healthcare situation, more efficient. Right. What are we going to do? We cannot go to no other planet. We got to do something about this climate situation. Right. The housing um, issue with all housing, of, with there yeah. being more empty houses than unhoused people and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, like something's got to be done. And the things that we're offering, it's not wild stuff. And it is showing in the research and the data that there's not to my knowledge, I don't think there's any left policy that I support where it's just like, look, <laughs> we're just doing it because I love it. Because Adrian loves doing it. Most right. of them are just like, they're going to be beneficial. And I'm a teacher. Mm. And so like, one of the, and I teach elementary school age children. And so one of the things that we often talk about is differentiating. So if a child comes in and they might like, and we're in math lesson or whatever, they may know how to add, they might not know how to subtract, they might kind of know how to multiply and then they don't know how to, they don't know how to divide. And so as a teacher, what you want to do is you want to differentiate and target what are the specific needs of that child depending upon the top, the topic. Now, mm-hmm. when I go into like sessions about organizing for Medicare world, Medicare for all for the local chapter DSA and everything. And they're like teaching me how to do it. When it comes to the practice part, they're always shocked because they're like, wow, you did that really well. I'm like, like whenever people are, um, we had to do a practice or whatever and I'll give my spiel and they'll be like, wow, you did that really well. I said, yeah. Sometimes I have to tell three-year-olds that they can't have three-year-olds, but (laughs) five-year-olds that they can't have ice cream for breakfast. (laughs) And I'm I'm like differentiating based on the um, topic at hand. And it's just like, it would be odd to me if I were standing in the class and not odd, but like I would realize that some more interventions need to be done. If I'm standing in a classroom and I'm giving out my best targeted interventions or strategies for a child and they're still not responding, it's like, okay, there needs to be a next step. What is odd for me is like when I'm doing that with adults, I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, if you don't care about Medicare for all because of a moral standpoint, that's fine. I've got an efficiency standpoint uh, mm-hmm. perspective that we can look at this from. And it just is like, 
time after time after time, it just appears to be like, I've given you like five, six, maybe even seven different reasons to why we could support this policy. I think at this point, you need to pull out your, your, um, your joker and your deck of cards and just be like, I don't want people to have healthcare. Just say that. <laughs> just say it. Yeah. Look, I, there are people who eventually will get to that point and can be pressed into that. There are people who say it by accident. <laughs> they don't mean to say it, but they do. A lot of liberals, it's, I will say this. I talk a lot of shit about liberals and how frustrating it is to argue with them almost more so than Republicans sometimes. <laughs> but a liberal is easier to guilt on that like don't you care about the children level because their whole brand is ostensibly i care about minorities and children and gay people and all that so it's like that, UK, uk yeah flags in the background really cool jeans and a quote <laughs> about the children <laughs> right like it's the, okay, it's the cover of the new yorker have you seen the, right. the new cover of the new yorker with the two brownstones side by side split down the middle of the frame and one of the brownstones is obviously owned by a liberal with like a coexist sign and black lives matter sign and in in like uh, a garden for butterflies in the front and the other one is owned by a conservative who's sitting on the deck in a maga hat and a clean cut flat lawn and an American flag. And, you know, they're, I mean, the, it, the juxtaposition shows how, frankly, how similar they are. They're in the same tax bracket, in the same neighborhood, living in identical houses. Anyway, the, 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 that is, that is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I will say that the, what liberals then do is say, well, of course I care about the children, but it's just not practical. We just don't have the money. It just can't be done. We'll lose the seat if we do the right thing. I want to tell you, you just, you just want to come across the table and just start shaking it like <laughs> one said. Don't shake unless you're ready to get shook. If y'all know about it, then you know. And if you don't, you don't. But it, it's just like, come on. Like, oh, my gosh. Like, who gives it? Like, oh, my goodness. I just, and sometimes I talk to people who have children. Like, I, and it's like, if your child were sitting here and something severely was happening, would you give a damn about me saying, well, maybe we could do this or that or this, this, and that? No, do whatever needs to get fixed. Come on, right. hurry this up. And there just doesn't seem to be that urgency. And I'm wondering if that's because it really is not being, I mean, like y'all touched upon this in the podcast, but these issues are not being covered to, it, it's not commensurate with, with, with what's actually happening. Like, yeah. The world is on fire and we're debating like, mm, I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. The, the, it's on fire. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of, I will say there's also some hysteria sometimes from liberals about things that are, are important, but are not the thing that's on fire. And I'm not, this is not like, I'm not codedly talking about trans issues or anything like this. I'm talking about like, they will find like. I don't know. I'm having to remember an example, but they will find like a bad thing. Like someone did a racism. Mm-hmm. Someone followed someone around the store. Someone didn't let Oprah buy the $40,000 purse she wanted to buy. You know, something that's like, you know, something a like racism. Right. Like not, it's like not a good thing. But Jesse Smollett, you know, something like that will happen. Even pretend Jesse Smollett wasn't lying. You know, mm-hmm. even if he weren't lying, like that becomes the cause celeb instead of the, mm-hmm. the broader situation like doing this housing episode hearing Rebecca Parsons talk in detail about her own journey with uh, homelessness and also people in her district who she's seen evicted and children and you know people having to go to school from having slept overnight in the car I mean this is America 
And those are not the stories that are on TV. And unless you're t- tuning in to, you know, Max Alvarez, mm-hmm. God bless him, yeah. or one of these kind of shows, you know, Jordan Sheridan, who are, you know, putting cameras mm-hmm. in people's faces and traveling across the country, no one even gives a shit about those stories in the mainstream. Like, you get your feel, your quote-unquote feel-good story about someone who, you know, gets hit by a bus and then pays off their grandmother's mortgage because that's the best we can hope for in this squid game fucking world we live in. And what I'm saying, these people are guests up about it it's like she broke her ankle and now student debt free i'm like no, right. no, no. there was a medical malpractice and i don't have lungs anymore but i don't have student debt i mean we had to resuscitate her 18 times and she finally came back like she was a cat with two times nine lives it's ridiculous stuff and they're just excited and gleeful about it and then we'll turn around and tell you to vote but um we've been chatting i will say this this is kind of more all this good vibes and positive energy and now we'll kind of maybe bring down the vibes but i talked to you about how i'm a teacher mm-hmm. and i tell y'all it is so depressing and sad to just see you've talked about this earlier when you were you know doing a, a lot of work with the force of o or at least trying to get that going at a certain point everybody has to shut the fuck up and notice that there is something that is super huge that is an elephant in the room that nobody cannot see so if we're going to force some Medicare situations, some healthcare, universal coverage, if you're not going to do it during a pandemic where all of these extenuating factors really support a case for universal healthcare, when the hell are you going to do it? Yeah. If you're not going to, I mean, oh my gosh, you're, you're singing, you're, you're saying poems and singing songs. <laughs> and when people are, when I tell you just we shit, man, excuse my language, but I'm just like, it just, the Democrats are literally that kid outside and no disrespect to nerds. I wear glasses. I was a nerd at one point <laughs> in my life. I still am. But it's literally like that weak nerd shit. You're outside, you're standing there. The bully is beating you up and you're just like, no, you gotta throw a little something. Or rip that tape off your glasses and whack them, snatch your fucking eyebrow off, do something. But like, they're not doing anything. And so you got the, the shooting crisis in Uvalde. You've got the planet is just on fire, nothing. Roe v. Wade, nothing. They're taking away voting rights, nothing. And all they have to offer is um, the poems and the songs <laughs> or getting down and bended knee and getting back up in a very creaky fashion a couple years ago, it's just like, you guys really don't have to do that. But, um, and the other thing I would say too is like, I, as a teacher, I had avoided all that Uvalde stuff because I think about like, oh gosh, what if something really does happen in the school? Mm. But I think when you all cover, it was either you or Breaking Points, y'all covered the testimony of a teacher and was like, I will never forgive them. And when I tell you, I was up at 12 o'clock at night, bawling my eyes out, Mm -hmm. hyperventilating. And I said, is this a country of freedom that we think that we have? Like, is this what freedom is? Because Mm -hmm. this is miserable. Mm -hmm. I could never imagine any one of the students that I've taught for the past several years just lying on the ground, lifeless. Even Mm -hmm. the ones who drive me insane, who I still love. Like, it just is wild to me that in this country, this is what we have to subject ourselves to. And then there's this debate of, well, we, you know, we don't want to take away gun rights. Damn that. We want people alive. Don't you care about the population? <laughs> you care about, you're so pro-life until these kids are dead in the school. And it's like, hey, I don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, like, it just is wild. And so I would just kind of, I guess, close on. It's unfortunate 
I don't really know. Like, if all these major world events are happening and nothing is being done, then what can be? But what is the silver lining is when that young lady was on um, was on MSNBC mm-hmm. and she was like, hold up, I'm tight <laughs> with y'all hoes. <laughs> First of all, you don't send me. When I tell you, I want to narrate her. I want to be like on the MSNBC payroll, like oh, they suck. But like, if they want to pay me to narrate what that girl was really saying, then I would definitely take that little check. You know, keep it pushing. But she was literally like, "Hold the fuck up, bitch." We curse on here, right? Yes. Okay. You can do whatever you want. We've been cursing for like minutes now. Um, <laughs> can we can we curse on here? It's like sure. But she literally was like, "Hold up, bitch." You don't get to send it. You don't come in by my DMs talking about, oh, well, can you send me $15 when you done had? She said 20, 30, 40, 50 decades. I was like, yes, get it right. You're doing it. Keep going. And she's like, how the fuck are y'all going to ask me for money? And y'all are in office. What are you doing? And, and um, look, okay. After this, we're done. I'm just going to run off into the shadows. But again, I think one of the more positive things is, I don't know how to address this, but I do think that the energy on the ground is much further ahead, as we know the polls show it, than where the Democratic Party is. And there are times when we are able to skip past the nonsense of the Democratic Party. I think of Georgia as an instance in that 2020 election or when I tell you they were, I've never seen people so giddy that they didn't win all. Like, yeah, Democrats get giddy about not really technically winning the Senate yet because they had to have that runoff in Georgia mm-hmm. in, in January. They're like, oh, we're so excited. And I mean, like, we'll be able to work with Republicans. I don't know why. I don't know why they feel like that, but whatever. But they're giddy. And what was interesting is to see that energy on the ground in Georgia really outwork and outmaneuver the lack of being able to do your job fucking effectively from the Mm -hmm. Democratic Party. And so I'm just hopeful that maybe something can come out of it, but I am very bleak on the future and we we shall see. Well, look, I'm glad that you called in because you picked me up right here at the end. I am like on my last little bit of battery. I've got one of those chargers that sits underneath your phone, but it like will maintain without making it more. And it like slowly, like it, slows down the rate of drainage you know what i mean it's and i can't like a democratic party. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're saying, right? exactly and to get it to plug into the microphone and the roadcaster and stuff i can't use the normal power jack so I, i'm gonna go ahead and wrap now we've gone almost two and a half hours but i want to thank you for being this last caller because you have given me you have rejuvenated me you have reminded me those queens in green Okay, on MSNBC really did give me hope because that what they told me is that we are no longer alone. That a lot of people who aren't necessarily listening to Bad Faith or Breaking Points or the Katie Halper Show or all these other outlets where we've been screaming this at the top of our lungs for over a year, everybody is hip to it. Although, what do we know? Maybe they are bad faith listeners. I shouldn't sum myself short. But look, thank you. All of you guys are restorative. I really appreciate this community, even if I'm still struggling to find my real life community in Washington D.C. I said music, I think, can be helpful to these revolutionary moments. And I have been searching for revolutionary tracks um, to help buoy me in this moment. I found this uh, Gil Scott Heron track, Who Will Pay Reparations for My Soul? And I will be leaving that with you tonight. Take care of yourselves. Keep the faith. And I will see you on Thursday. Bye. Bye.
you cut That were never really there Yes, but the heat in the summer was there And the freezing winter's cold Now tell me